Hello, one and all, and welcome to episode 32 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. As always, hosted by two wonderful gentlemen, me, Trevor Dame, and as always, the creator, the mind behind the show, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're made it to the end of 2003. Yeah, nobody believes that I'm the mind behind the show, but you keep saying it, and I'll just keep taking credit for it. I am, I am the mind like that famous, popular, beloved movie Megamind um, that everyone loves. Um, you know, that cartoon about the guy with the giant brain that everyone definitely saw. Um, I did not expect a Megamind reference in this show, did you? No, that's what that's really really what sets us apart. <laughs> yes, that and only that. Every otherwise we're just like every other podcast. Um hello to everybody listening. Welcome to the end of two thousand and three. I'm very excited to have finally gotten through two thousand and three. It was a it was a long year for me. Um you know, I um I had one semester in college that was pretty good. I had one that wasn't so great. Um but, you know, I'm really looking forward to two thousand four. I really think that we could beat George W. Bush this time. <laughs> Uh, simpler time. It's crazy that now I look back and I go, oh, those were the days. Yeah, I mean, I guess comparatively they were the days, but um, they were also pretty bad in their own ways. So I think the days were, the days have just mostly been bad, I think is what we're, uh, is what we're uh, really getting at here. Nothing like starting the podcast on an extremely bittersweet note, but uh, things will get sweeter because for those who have not followed, this is the second time ever we've reached the end of a year of Ring of Honor, which means not only will we review the final show of 2003, Final Battle 2003, but at the after the end of the review, you almost get like an extra bonus content because we will be doing some year-end awards, looking over what other people thought about it, maybe summing up the year a little bit. We did this for Final Battle 2002, so it's just a little extra thing where we kind of wrap everything up. So that'll come, we'll give you the whole regular show first, and then that'll be tacked on at the end. But one thing we have to do is plug the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, and rather than do the pre-written thing, I'm going to just do it to celebrate the end of the year. I'm going to do it the way we used to, Matt. Just off the dome, I'm going to praise this network, because we have something very specific, I think, to praise for the network this time. If you wanted more Matt Feuerstein, and who doesn't want more Matt Feuerstein? Everyone doesn't. (laughs) <laughs> oh, not me. I'm oh, can't be everyone because I want more. Aww. Because Matt, what if you're not listening to the other shows on the network? Shame on you. Because one thing you've missed, apart from a lot of good shows, is Matt was on the Pro Wrestling Super Show. They did a whole Rumble Draft episode where a few guys, including Matt, all picked. Uh, they did a snake style draft where they picked matches from the different Royal Rumbles through history. They had rules like. Could only do one of any title match. Only do one rumble match on your card, so you couldn't have like a show with four rumble matches. And I listened to it, and I thought it was a delightful show. And it was a, uh, it was a really. I thought Matt. I thought Juan, you did a great job, and all of you did. But also, I thought it was a really great way to um, revisit like the history of a pay per view without just doing the usual. Here's the show. Then we're going to the next year. Then we're going to the next year. I felt like you still got like a good kind of here's like the greatest hits of Royal Rumbles, but in a different format. Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I had a really great time being on the show. I highly recommend any show that is hosted and put together by Stephen Graham. He's great. He has a lot of great ideas. And uh, he has a lot. he's in a lot of different shows on the um, Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. So shout out to him and thank you for having me on and thank you to anybody who listened. And um, 
uh, vote for my card or don't. That's fine. Whatever. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, yeah. That's the other thing we should mention. You, it was actually an audience interactive show like Taboo Tuesday because uh, Stephen put on his Twitter a poll afterwards of here are the cards. Which person do you think did the best? So obviously listen to the show first. Be, be fair. But if you come to the genius conclusion that Matt's was the best, then vote for Matt show. Thank you. Thank you. But anyway, yeah, great. So lots of great shows on the Pro Wrestling Only Network. You should be listening to them, covering so many great topics. And I also feel like we should plug one other show that I have on my podcast queue. I haven't had time to listen to it yet. It is not part of the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. But there is a new podcast that reviews PWG show by show from the beginning. And I don't know, like... What idiots are going to review uh, old indie wrestling promotion show by show from the beginning? That would be that's never going to work. But if you want to give it a try, Journey Through Gorilla Island. And again, I haven't listened to the first episode yet, but I know some of the people I follow them on Twitter who are part of the hosts, and I have a feeling it's probably going to be fantastic. I actually am just learning about this right now, so thank you for that. I am definitely going to listen. I am and going to spread the word about it. That is exciting. I can't wait to listen. Yeah, so, again, always, you know, I think there should be more, uh, I think there's still fertile ground that hasn't been dug up with a shovel on, I don't know where that was going, but, you know, for uh, independent wrestling podcasts that are kind of visiting, I guess, the first golden age or the first boom, we kind of went through the second boom, I would say, in the last few years, but that early to mid-2000s, I feel like, you know, CZW, IWA Mid-South, you know, Jersey All-Pro, there's still, like some really interesting things that could be talked about and would love to hear more people do podcasts on them. But. That, that era of indie wrestling was just beyond fascinating. And like you said, there was so much going on. And anytime I see somebody like, I know like Rob Naylor will frequently upload clips of various indies from the early two thousands. And there's so much interesting stuff, whether it's, um, you know, local shows in the New York area or, the PWG and Pro Wrestling Epic and Pro Wrestling Iron and the different California stuff to the Midwest stuff like IWA Mid-South and then you got the CZWs of the world, even XPW stuff. Um, there's just There was just so much interesting stuff going on in the early 2000s in the indies. It was an incredible time. So yeah, any podcast that focuses on that era is going to be something I'm going to run to. Yeah. And again, uh, while we're plugging these kind of podcasts and Stephen Graham and our podcast network, something that fits the Venn diagram of all those things, one more time we'll plug uh, Stephen Graham's great new uh, Shimmer Herstory podcast, I mean, which is a great podcast about the history of Shimmer. So, so The history of David Schwimmer? <laughs> uh, did you see this week the Nick Cage meme where if you put Nick Cage's face on David Schwimmer, it just looks more like David Schwimmer? I did not, but I did see that there was a new Dave Meltzer controversy about how popular Friends was in England on Twitter. <laughs> so it's like, all of this stuff ties in together. Oh, God, I love that stuff. <laughs> but, uh, so before we get to, we have, I, this is the longest notes I've ever put together for a show between the year-end stuff and lots of news about Final Battle 2003. But we have, like, two things I think we should get to before we cover the show proper. The first thing is a brief update on a previous show. Um, on a recent show, we covered War of the Wire, which had the second ever homicide uh, Steve Carino, like big bloody feud match. Not their second match. That would be their third, actually, but the second good one. And um, Owls 
2004 on Twitter remind me of something I forgot to put in the notes to my dismay. He wrote, great episode as always. If I recall, the barbed wire match was a replacement for some tag match involving Abdullah the Butcher and Homicide. Uh, I did have this in my notes. I forget. It was one of the shows on that double shot. Originally, there was supposed to be one of the main events was supposed to be a Dream Partners match, where it would be Homicide reteaming with Abdullah the Butcher against Steve Crino and some Dream Partner. I don't know if it was ever announced or if there was one, but uh, I guess Abdullah the Butcher got a better offer from an All Japan tour, which is kind of ironic considering the show we're covering today, <laughs> and missed had to cancel the show. And I think, I forget which show it was, but I think it might have been War of the Wire. So it might have been that we got Homicide and uh, Steve Crino in the barbed wire match because of Abdul the Butcher canceling. That is a weird and the story that I didn't know about. Um, but about War of the Wire, you know, one opportunity I missed was just to make this joke, which is that I wish at the time that my grandmother was a Ring of Honor fan so she could say, did you see War of the Wire? <laughs> War of the Wire. It was wonderful. <laughs> um, and then the other... Uh, <laughs> That's so stupid. <laughs> Every time you say something is stupid, I think like it's eight at times out of ten, like something I'm thinking, that's one of the best things that's ever happened on this podcast. Oh, God. <laughs> it's like a good... It's a good... The way we line up on that. Um, we both have terrible senses of humor. It's perfect. <laughs> and now for a sharp right turn, uh, we have to get something a little more serious because I have kind of a... A correction, or maybe not even a correction as much as I feel like I have to make amends for something. A bunch of shows ago, we got into the story of Steve Carino having to miss a show because he got into legal trouble, ended up spending a couple weeks in prison or jail. And uh, I, the only side of the story I had, and I think I even said this is just one side of the story, but still... I gave, uh, Steve Carino talked about it extensively on an old RF video podcast, He and he made it sound like... It was a jealous ex-girlfriend, and she completely framed him, and that everyone from the newspapers and the local TV station, they were all going to have to apologize. He was going to prove it all wrong, and that he was even going to sue them. And we just gave their side of the story. And the only reason I only gave his side of the story was because it was interesting and extensive, and I had it, and I did not have the other side of the story. Well... One of the one of the problems was sometimes I only am reading I'm trying to read farther ahead in in my note research, but I only read so far ahead. And if I had read further ahead before we did that episode months ago, I would have gotten the other side of the story, which I will just read now from the Pro Wrestling um the Pro Wrestling Observer, which came out or just Wrestling Observer, I don't know why I added Pro. But um, it's a different newsletter. <laughs> it, it's a it's a much more professional grade, yeah. much more expensive. Paper is a much nicer stock, but um, this is from the Observer at the time, from this around this period, and I think it kind of gives you the other side of the story. And again, the truth might be in the middle, or but this is the Observer. Steve Carino pled guilty on forgery and access device fraud on charges that he had bilked an ex-girlfriend out of $12,100 this past week. Carino, 30, was given one year of probation and placed into the Montgomery County, Pennsylvania Accelerated Rehabilitative Disposition Program. Carino wasn't given any time because he came to court with a check for $13,100 to ex-girlfriend Cheryl Kennard to cover the amount plus $1,000 in travel expenses to her since she flew in from California to get the check. 
Kennedy told police in April that Creel had used her credit card without authorization and forged her name on checks between June and December of 2001 after ECW went out of business. She was happy with the outcome because she was fully compensated and Creel has been held responsible. Creel had professed innocence publicly all along and said in a website statement that he couldn't say any more about the case, but that local newspaper reporters were wrong. Creel had claimed reports and newspaper stories were wrong in the past and retractions would be printed. None were, and subsequent stories, including this week, listed that Creel had faced a maximum 117 years in prison if he was convicted of all the charges against him in a trial. Creel and Kennard were living together in Skipack, Pennsylvania at the time, when Creel was charged with running charges on her credit card and forging a check. So, again, at the time, I believe that our video shoot interview with Steve Creel I referenced many episodes ago was between his jailing and this, this event, uh, clearly it puts it in a different light. The fact that Creel ended up, um, pleading guilty and paying her back all her money. So just want to be fair. And also Matt, maybe I just don't know the intricacies of the legal system, but it's crazy that he paid her an extra $1,000 to fly, to pick up the check. Seems like it would have been more convenient just to FedEx it for like everybody involved. Yeah, I'm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I when it comes to like legal stuff like this, I try not to comment at all because because yeah, who the hell knows? But I don't want to get anyone in trouble. Again, we don't know whose side, but I just felt like I presented the one side on that episode, and it's only fair. To, like it would be weird if I knew ended up learning this and did not present the follow up. Well, okay, I talked about how he professed his innocence, but then months later he did plead guilty. So yeah, I, just now we have both sides. You you know you decide what you want to think. Doesn't matter. Moving on, this was the Final Battle 2003 was the biggest show Ring of Honor had done in its history up to that point, and one of the things that made it the biggest is it not just did a uh, regular full show, they did another one of those afternoon kind of convention cards, and we did not watch that. It's on the out-of-print Ring of Honor Uncensored DVD if you would like to hunt that down, but I thought I'd give the results, and there was a few interesting notes and names on that show. First off, The Observer wrote, Ring of Honor also held an afternoon showcase card, which drew 550 fans at $5 per head to see largely prelim matches, but was actually larger than any crowd the company had done in Philadelphia previously. I'll also say uh, Mike Johnson was there live, and he eyeballed that crowd for the convention card at 800. Uh, I'd probably more go to the Observer, because they probably got it directly from Ring of Honor, and if Ring of Honor was telling them 550, it was probably 550 or less, but... Uh, all Japan dudes were apparently signing autographs for 10 bucks a head during this whole convention card. And here are the matches. Sumi Sakai, last year's Ring of Honor uh, Women's Champion, defeated Alice in Danger. Josh Daniels defeated Puma, who some of you may know better as TJ Perkins. Uh, the Christopher Street Connection went to a no contest with the Ring Crew Express. CM Punk defeated Mace of the Ring Crew Express. Uh, the Carnage Crew of Loke, DeVito, and Just Incredible went to a no contest with Izzy, Dixie, and Angel Dust. A couple big notes coming out of this. First, oh, first of all, when you say CM Punk defeated Mace, you mean um, of, the, of the Christopher Street Connection. Yeah, oh yeah, I said, yeah, I screwed up. Thank you so much. For no that. problem. A um, couple notes from Mike Johnson about the Carnage Crew match. He writes first, the Carnage Crew and Just Incredible went to a no contest with, with Special K when the Pennsylvania State Athletic Commission legitimately stopped the match when a bleeding credible ended up bumping into the crowd. The, the commission has been adamant in the last year that no bleeding wrestlers go into the crowd for health reasons, but Credible was cut up in the moment and forgot. So that's the first note. And the second is, 
Deranged of Special K, who was scheduled for this match, is done with the company. He was booked for the convention show and didn't make it, so they've opted no longer to book him, as it was an issue in the past. At one point, Deranged was planned to break away from Special K and be part of Julius Smokes' faction, but he missed a show in Baltimore without contacting the promotion and hadn't been used since. They were going to bring him back in January, but opted to use him on this show, Final Battle 2003, which would have been his official return. It's a shame as he has a lot of talent, but as of right now, the promotion felt their hands were tied. So, you know, one of the things we've gotten going through these old shows is really appreciating, like, how good Deranged was. And it is kind of sad that it seems like, I mean, he would and eventually would come back in Ring of Honor and work a bunch more dates. He'll be, he'll be back pretty soon, actually. Yeah. But definitely, it sounds like they had a bigger push in mind for him that he never he never ended up getting. Right. So I yeah. imagine maybe made them more hesitant to ever be like, all right, we'll use you, but we're not going to, you know, put you in a big stable or anything. Right. So that's kind of sad, but I mean, whatever life. And that's my new catchphrase, whatever life. Uh, next up, Hydro defeated three other people in a four way, Oman Tortuga, Slick Wagner Brown, and Nick Gage. Yes, Nick Gage, 15 <laughs> years ago. That's a crazy combination. Nick Gage wrestled in Ring of Honor in 2003. Weird to think, but it's true. Every, uh, everyone's favorite now. <laughs> yeah, everyone's favorite uh, longtime felon. Um, and then the semi-main event of the afternoon card was Trent Acid beat Sanjay Dutt. Thought this was an interesting comment again from Mike Johnson, who was there. Dutt is a great performer, but he hasn't really shined thus far in his Ring of Honor work. It's almost similar to Paul London last year, where he was tearing down the house in Ring of Honor, but when he worked in NWA TNA, he wasn't as as, as impressive out of the gate. So I, I haven't watched enough TNA from that period to know if that's true, but he's kind of pre- presenting Sanjay as like the reverse Paul London, where he was good in TNA and then not great in Ring of Honor. So Hey, it happens. I mean, I've definitely seen examples of that uh, with other yeah, people. Yeah, absolutely. There's wrestlers, and we'll probably get into them over time. Like Chris Sabin? I, I mean, at this point, at least. You know, even sometimes I thought, like, eventually he, he really clicked, but I thought, like, early when Claudio got brought into Ring of Honor, like, I was watching stuff like Chikara at the time, I thought his Chikara work was had, like, I was like, there's something he's missing in Ring of Honor at first. That he had in places like, like Jakar. Yeah, and le- le- later on, Christopher Daniels, I feel like, you know, when he comes back to ROH after everything, his TNA work outshined his ROH work during that period. Yeah, sometimes guys, just their role or the, the company or whatever, they're just, things don't click and doesn't mean they're not clicking somewhere else. Right, it, exactly. So. It's important to note sometimes where we talk about, oh, this guy didn't look so good or whatever. It doesn't mean they were bad wrestlers. It doesn't even mean they weren't doing good stuff somewhere else at the same time, even. And finally, the main event of the afternoon card were the Briscoe brothers, Jay and Mark Briscoe. They defeated the SAT to retain the Ring of Honor tag team titles. Uh, I was almost going to watch this match, but I didn't have time. This is said to have been not a good match. I've heard people tell me, like, oh, this are you rewatching this? This is not a good match. And it's notable, we'll talk about maybe a bit later, uh, Mark Briscoe hurt his knee pretty bad, apparently, during this match. And ended up having to pull double duty. He still gutted through it. So the final, kind of sad in a weird way, even though I thought they were kind of underwhelming, that the SAT for all their, you know, they were a pretty big part of this period of indie wrestling, or at least 2001, 2002. And... Their final match is not even on like an actual DVD release that isn't 
Ring of Honor uncensored. Yeah, I um, I, that sucks for uh, Mark Briscoe, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and now we finally we can review the show proper. Final Battle 2003 took place December 27th, 2003, in Philadelphia at the their debut show at the Philadelphia National Guard Armory in front of a reported Ring of Honor record-setting crowd of 1,500 people. Although one source told the Observer that the actual paid attendance was close to a thousand, closer to a, a thousand, but I guess more 1,500 in the building and some freebies, but the Observer wrote about the new venue, Ring of Honor basically forced to move out of the Murphy Rec Center because the capacity of 400 was going to be enforced strictly from this point forward, announced its next Philadelphia show on December 27th for the 3,000-seat Philadelphia National Guard Armory. ECW tried that building years ago and drew well the first time and poorly the second. The building can be curtained off in a way that it would look full even with 500 people. They were unable to get the Viking Hall since 3PW had a date. They also were scheduled to talk with the Electric Factory as far as a permanent home. So, uh, Matt, none of that. I They ended up continuing to go back to the Philadelphia National Guard Armory and... You know, 1,500 people, even over 1,000 for a ring of honor at this time was a very good crowd. This is the first ROH show ever to take place in a building that I actually saw ROH in. Um, you know, because I've gone to a lot of shows at that building. Um, and I can tell you, it's, it's pretty big. Um, it's pretty spacious, and it's a really good um, place to see a show. Sight lines are very good. They have, like, big bleachers with a lot of room to sit in. And it's a good venue, so I am. Uh, it was a good change for ROH for sure. And the crowd on this particular night clearly was enjoying it because they were hot. Yeah, I would say this might have been, in my opinion, this might have been the hottest Ring of Honor crowd we've seen yet. And it's, it's hard, hard to hard to say, but it's certainly the hottest in a long time. Yeah, it's crazy to think that like the very previous show we reviewed, War of the Wire. That was probably, like, the worst crowd we've seen so far. And this is at least probably top three. Yeah, I mean, obviously part of it is it's many, many, many more people. but <laughs> And a bit of a different card, but... Yes, but they were oh, certain... That, I mean, they, they were psyched for this event like from the oh, beginning. Yeah. In fact, uh, let me see if I can find it in my notes. I think... I don't know how um, he knew this. I think... Uh, maybe I'll find it later, but I think Mike Johnson, there was, like, 130 people that came from, like, far away to see the show. Like he was doing the old reel off countries and license plates and stuff, but you know this obviously just judging from this was their record setting crowd. You know this was an event to people. People really wanted to see the all Japan guys. Yeah, I guess two of them in particular, but yes. Yeah, no, they really wanted to see a Rashi and uh, <laughs> Miyamoto. Obviously, I the can't. Were a nice moment. Yeah, I want to see more and more and more of a Rashi after this show. <laughs> um, so. Uh, I could say this for later in the show, but I think it's kind of good to set the table. The big story of this show, in some ways, was how the All Japan wrestlers felt about doing this show and how that changed and what made that change. So I'll just start the story. I got a few sources, but I'll start with a... This is what the Ring of Honor website hyped the this upcoming show as. The Japanese contingent is eagerly anticipating Final Battle 2003. We have gotten word that the great Muda can't wait to return to the United States and is very much looking forward to performing in front of the Ring of Honor fans. Now, I'll juxtapose this with this is the Observer story after the show, and I'll also note this is the only the second time in uh, Ring of Honor's history at this point that they had a show so big that Dave actually covered it as like a major story and not in the here and there section. The first time was the Teddy Hart incident. This was a show Dave actually gave like a big story to. 
So this is what the Observer wrote about this show. When Kaiji Mudo and the All Japan crew came to the U.S. over the weekend, they considered it more of a vacation between tours. When Ring of Honor booker Gabe Sapolsky asked a couple of the company wrestlers who were working with the All Japan stars before the December 27th show in Philadelphia about how their matches looked to be going, since it was the company's biggest show in history, the reply was that the, that the Japanese wrestlers didn't want to do much of anything. Muno, in fact, went to promoter Rob Feinstein before the show and asked him if he could work the opener so he could get out of the building early and enjoy his vacation. He assumed he'd be performing in front of 250 fans and working as a heel. Feinstein told him that the people were going to go nuts for him, and there was no possible way he could heal. Muto didn't believe it. Even though fans cheered him in many of his later WCW matches on brief comebacks, and really wanted to cheer him in 1989 as well, when he was a U.S. regular in the late 80s, the general rule among bookers seemed to be that American fans would never cheer a Japanese wrestler. Great Muto was an American heel character based on the success of the great Kabuki character in Texas years earlier. But when the All Japan wrestlers saw the reaction they were getting from a crowd announced as a company record 1500 um they put on their working shoes and tore the house down when all was over all japan was still said to be thrilled with the reaction they got while there are no plans both sides talked about doing another show supposedly like the idea of doing it as an annual big show at the end of the year they also talked about perhaps all japan promoting an a Ring of Honor show at Korokin Hall in Japan. Muto had never seen the product and didn't know what it was prior to start the start of the show. He f most likely figured it would be something like the next show he was on the next night in San Antonio, which drew about 200 fans. So, I wonder what um, I wonder what put a kibosh on the whole uh, All Japan ROH relationship because it did it didn't really last after the show. Yeah, you know, they, they, and, they, and they moved to. Uh, you know, to Noah by late 2005 with and Dragon Gate with a pretty like strong relationship with those two promotions. Yeah, and they had a brief dalliance even with a uh, New Japan between the this and those companies. So they kind of hopped everywhere. But yeah, it's weird because I think I saw another story where it was like all Japan was so pumped by this Ring of Honor show they were thinking about running the U.S. by themselves, which it just seemed that seemed like a thing Japanese companies did because I think when we talked about zero one in 2002 after they were had some of their guys work ring of honor they were talking about well maybe we'll run a zero one show in america and everyone they would work with ring of honor and then get this like crazy buzz where they feel like well maybe we could run here regularly but it seems like a lot of them ended up getting cold feet that is what it seems like but at least like continuing to put your guys on roh shows but i don't know i guess it's, it's until the really the noah and dragon gate thing nothing really ever stuck and I consider the show to be, like, the first major time Ring of Honor ever worked with a Japanese promotion. Like, they did work with Zero One for All-Star Extravaganza, where they had um, Otani and Tanaka. But this was the first time, really, where they got a big batch of guys. And it really, really was, like, the sole big focal point of a big show. And obviously, Ring of Honor would get great success with that and would use that formula quite often in the future. Um we have some other sources on this story, though, which I think also gives some background to it. I found an old Ring of Honor straight shooting uh, shoot interview with Samoa Joe, and he tells a pretty, um, uh, I think, like, fun story about uh, what it was like backstage at the show. 
He says, uh, before the show, Joe says he ran to Miyamoto and Hanma and says they were pretty adamant about the show just being a vacation for them. Joe says he and a lot of the other Ring of Honor guys like CM Punk and AJ Styles were all pissed that the All Japan guys felt that way. Uh, Joe goes on to say they weren't asking the All Japan guys to kill themselves, but he felt like they should at least put on an effort. And then Joe says the All Japan guys thought that the Ring of Honor show would be a small indie event, maybe drawing 200 people, and that hopefully the crowd would be blacked out and that the Samurai TV crew that was there recording the show for Japan would shoot all upshots, which Joe says is a common Samurai TV trick when they shoot Japanese stars at small U.S. shows. Uh, Joe then says, before the show started, Muda walked to the curtain as the show started, and he looked through the curtain at the crowd. And Joe says at this point, using his rough knowledge of conversational Japanese, he saw great Muda tell an assistant of his to, quote, run to the bus and get the good gear, unquote. Uh, Joe thinks at that point Muda told the other All Japan wrestlers that they were going to put in an effort that night. And Joe thinks the reception from the crowd made the All Japan talent really want to put in effort, especially guys like Hanma and Miyamoto. So it's pretty amazing that, like, that they their minds were changed that much. And I love the yeah. idea that Muda has good gear. Do you believe? Do you believe that story? Like, do you think like it's more like this is like a, almost like an intentional urban legend that they're creating, where like they were just so amazed with what they saw in ROH that they decided that they were going to work hard and get the good gear. Because like I don't know, it seems like that's a very that's a quick turnaround. Also, like if he was that sure about what America would be, why do even bring the good gear? Um. I think they probably, I mean, both, I mean, it's, we just talked about a couple sources said they thought they were going to see like a 200 person show. I think they probably had in their back of their mind, we should probably bring gear just in case. But I, I, I believe that they thought it was going to be a small show and they wouldn't have to work hard. I don't think that in their minds, they were going to go like, no matter what, we weren't going to work hard. I think probably they were, they were like, well, a bigger showman, we have to step it up. But hmm. At the same time, the Ring of Honor thing made it sound like, oh, they really are pumped. You know, that Ring of Honor news story from their website made it sound, oh, they're really pumped to come here and work there. I bet you they weren't. And quite honestly, I also don't think, like, the narrative and the Observer and stuff from the reports they were getting were like, oh, they they really worked hard and tore the house down. I don't think they, like, completely mailed it in. But I think in some of these matches we're going to cover, they still weren't, like, tearing the house down effort. Yeah, I mean, like, well, I'll, I'll save that for the actual matches, but, um, yeah, I, you know, I think there's a lot of questions to be asked about that particular concept. And I also want to know, like, that the one thing I, I kind of agree with you, like, I don't really doubt the stories, but one thing that kind of gets, the one thing that gets me a little more going to your skepticism is that part where the mutos muda said to uh rob feinstein like can i go on first because i want to start my vacation he had to work the next night so like what's muda in a like a <laughs> a rush to do in philadelphia on a saturday night he's like oh, i want to catch a movie rob like yeah why would he in, de- in, de- in december yeah <laughs> he's like i really want to try the wawa rob like <laughs> I, I, gotta, I gotta do it now before it closes you gotta help me yeah um like, I don't think Wawa closes, but... Yeah, yeah, Wawa is something I've never been to, so I'm just a Wawa poser. I know it's a Philly thing, and they have hoagies. Yeah, but, it's it's yeah, it's that it's not just Philly, but yes, it is popular in that part of the country. Um, so one other thing I guess we should mention, too, I thought this was just interesting tidbit. They did, the All Japan guys did go on to San, a San Antonio show the next night, and it was more of apparently what they thought, so... 
Check this out, Matt. This is from The Observer. The San Antonio show promoted by Brandon Oliver's River City Wrestling was a back-to-reality for all Japan the next night with a small crowd. It was announced that Road Warrior Animal had the flu. Animal had called the night before saying that that was the reason he wouldn't be coming. So Mudo and Arashi retained their tag titles over Pete Lothario, Jose Sun, and Hot Stuff Hernandez. Miyamoto lost to Jeremy Sage, while Kojima worked as great Koji and beat Black Gordman Jr. Gordman Jr. was busted up when he cracked his head on the guardrail doing a tope. So, interesting that Ko- uh, Kojima's opponents on both nights, like, get bad head injuries. That's a weird thing. And what a weird match. Muda and Arashi versus Jose Lothario's son and Hot Stuff Hernandez. Hey. In front of 200 people. Maybe it was. Maybe they tore the house down when they saw how cool those two hundred people were. <laughs> Mudo looked through the curtain and be like, "This crowd is full of cool babes." Get the mediocre gear. Yeah. <laughs> Get also, the middle of the road gear. Also, apparently, um, apparently the um, the flu must be must have been really going around because another wrestler on this show supposedly had the flu as well. Yeah, well, yeah, Johnny Cashmere, right? Well, also, B.J. Whitmer, they said. Oh, yeah. Johnny Cashmere missed this show, actually, I should mention, because of the flu. Although, I think this might have been the incident where later on he was working at his job at a bar that night, and Gabe got into a fight with him over that, I mm-hmm. think, and, and, like, saying, oh, you can work at a bar, but you can't wrestle, and big to do. But um, I had some notes here about there was a couple – big glowing pieces from both Dave Meltzer and Mike Johnson talking about how successful Ring of Honor was at this time. Um, I'm going to just edit them because they're long and I think the show's going to be plenty long as it is. But I'll just note, this was the one of the first times I saw real big stories about like Ring of Honor is really on the way up. They're doing really good. They're really doing well financially. And obviously, we'll get to it in a few shows they weren't doing good financially. Like they were growing certainly in popularity and crowd sizes, but in a few shows we'll get reports from these same sources saying that, Oh, Rob Feinstein and Carrie Silken have lost hundreds of thousands of dollars with ring of honor already. So a bit of a difference there. And finally, before we get to the show proper, a few other interesting notes from Mike Johnson, who again was there live. Uh, he says all Japan was happy with the show. Ori discussions to return for a joint show, blah, 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 Cork and Hall. And let me just go here. Dave Meltzer said that the company's looking at doing a second U.S. tour in July. So, again, that never happened as far as I know. Um, Mike Johnson says Alexis Laurie, who was under a WWE developmental deal, was backstage at Final Battle 2003, just hanging out. Um, they say that Ring of Honor's website did record hits the day after the show and that they have uh, tons of photos already up, blah, blah, blah. The promotion upgraded their lighting and sound system with the show using a, commuter- a computerized system and lighting effects. Matt, did you notice anything different when it came to that? Nope. Did you? Me neither. Me neither. And uh, with a crowd of 1,500, the promotion has now drawn a bigger paid attendance than t- NWA TNA has in their own short history. So it's funny because obviously TNA would become much bigger in their time. But at this point, Ring of Honor actually drew a bigger crowd. So we go to the show proper. The show starts with Gary Michael Capetta backstage asking the cameraman, Gabe Sapolsky, we can tell by his voice, who they have for intermission interviews. Gabe says they have the Briscoes. And then Gary manages to shoo in a plug for his book, Body Slams. When the Carnage crew barge in, screaming angrily, 
and wanting to know where Special K are. DeVito says this feud with Special K has gotten personal. Gary wants to know how. And the crew just tells Gary to find Special K and then he'll find out. So, Matt, this feud's going to a whole new level and we'll have more to talk about that later. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they they build this one slowly, but um, yeah, it's an interesting it's an interesting storyline. And next, we have the debut of a new segment. Samoa Joe's in the ring before the show starts, and the fans aren't in the building yet. And he says this is the debut of a new segment, Samoa Joe's Ring, where he'll demonstrate some of his favorite moves. Uh, Oman Tortuga interrupts him and introduces himself as Joe's first guest. Oban thinks Joe is going to ask him a lot of questions, and then Joe informs him he's here to demonstrate moves. Oman has the great line where he goes, wait, you want to do things? To me? And uh, within seconds, Joe has taken Tortuga down and is demonstrating a tight choke. Joe says that's what Mark Briscoe has in store tonight. Joe goes to demonstrate another move to Tortuga, who runs out of the ring in fear and gets the hell out of there. We'd see a few more of these segments over the shows. I never became a huge thing, but little segment for Joe. And then we're moving on, finally, to the first match of the show. Brian Danielson defeated Jay Briscoe by submission in 13 minutes, 36 seconds, with the catamutilation. Not very often. It's been quite a while, I think, since we've seen Brian Danielson in the opener of a show, Matt. What do you think? This is a pretty big opener to have for a card. Yeah, I mean, it was great. Like, this was a really great opener. Um, you know, it was, it was like the first two-thirds of a super, super match. They clearly intentionally held back a little bit. And uh, I know Meltzer said, like, this was supposed to showcase a new style. Um, I don't know if I really felt that it showcased a new style. It was just a really solidly worked mat wrestling match. With, like, you know, like, they they did a really long headlock spot, right? And, you know, they did, like, slaps. And Danielson debuted his... um, his airplane spin, which become a big part of his repertoire soon. Um, it wasn't as it wasn't a long airplane spin, but it was good. Um, yeah. But you know, not a lot of high impact moves, and like a very quick tap out after Dragon went for the cattle mutilation. But the crowd was cr- going crazy for it, and um, I also enjoyed um, a few things in the uh, commentary. Um, like when Gabe said that this show, this lineup was so good that we had to divide it into two parts or two <laughs> halves. And I'm like, wait, what? You always divide the show into two halves. Like <laughs> I, pie is so good we have to cut into slices. <laughs> he literally said, because he, he was trying to say there was an all Japan half and just a regular ROH half. But like, is that because of the goodness of the lineup or is it because of the amount of matches and the categorizing of those? Anyway, I'm, just being, I'm being pedantic, but... Another thing to be pedantic about, the top five rankings. Homicide, number five. Matt Stryker, number four. BJ Whitmer, number three. CM Punk, number two. And Jay Briscoe, I mean Mark Briscoe, excuse me, at number one. And my question was, why is Homicide on this and not Steve Carino? Since Homicide yeah. lost the War of the Wire match. But, um, but that's neither here nor there. I thought this was a very good offer, opener. Stiff, um, not overdoing it. Um, like I said, it felt like the first 15 minutes of a 25-minute match-of-the-year style match. That's sort of how I feel about it. I thought this was a very good match. Uh, one of the better openers Ring of Honor's probably had up to this point. I felt like this is a good match, like, side-by-side side with the uh, Brian Danielson-Christopher Daniel match from Round Robin Challenge way back in the second show Ring of Honor ever did, where I think if I was doing... Um, like classes on wrestling and trying to show guys good examples of how to do a good opener that 
like the crowd loves and is satisfying, but doesn't give away everything. I think both these matches are like perfect examples of that where, like you said, you don't feel like this is the best match they could have had. Like you said, they, um, like it's, this felt like the first two thirds. You feel like they leave some stuff on like off the table for a bigger match down the road, which sadly I don't think these two ever had, but, um, you don't feel deprived. It, it, it feels like a complete match to me. It did, or at least like a very satisfying match. And but they didn't go near fall crazy. They didn't do apart from the, a flying headbutt. There's no dives. They only do a few of their biggest moves, like right at the very end. Um, there's good restraint to this match, yet it's entertained the whole way through. I think part of that's just there's good intensity. And there's there's struggle. What I like about this is like so much of this match is simple stuff, like like you said, um, Danielson fighting to get out of headlocks and stuff. But what I like is every move. They're so in the moment, and everything feels like a struggle. And like they give a shit. It's not them just mentally thinking four moves down the road. Everything is them in the moment, really selling stuff. And I also even felt like. Danielson always brings good intensity, but I felt like this was the perfect amount. Like it was good intensity, but it wasn't over the top because these two really don't have a feud or anything. I mean, they're going to have a tag match on the next show, but like it's, it's intense, but it's not so intense for two guys to have no real reason to hate each other. Right. It was, it was competitiveness, not hatred. Exactly. And I thought there was a, uh, there was a great moment in, uh, I really liked where, uh, uh, there's a sequence where they're trading slaps, and then Danielson spits in Jay's face, and then Jay responds, he fakes that he's going to throw another uh, slap, and then when Del- Danielson flinches, he just rakes an eye, and it gets a huge crowd of ovation. And I think that sums up this match where like they were doing simple stuff like like slaps and eye rakes, and the crowd was just loving it. And that was the first time I was like, man, this is a really good crowd. You know, They're really into something there. It's not really doing like super over the top levels of action. And like you said, first airplane spin, he ever broke out in ring of honor. Um, during commentary, Gabe mentions that there will be a pure wrestling title. And I believe this is the first time in ring of honor on the DVDs, at least that he's ever mentioned that there's going to be a pure wrestling title. So a little historical note there, but yeah, I, I thought this was a very good match and don't go in expecting like it's going to be them trying to do a 20 minute main event, but just, Really satisfying, fun match to me, and yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's so, just it's just it's just a perfect like opener style match. Yeah, and the, like like you said, this card was split into two halves: the Ring of Honor half and the uh, All Japan half. Because it was so good. <laughs> but also, we'll get into it a little bit later. There was one guy that maybe didn't want it to be split like that, and we'll get into that in a couple of matches, maybe. But next up, we um, after the match, we fade into Jay Briscoe walking backstage, and Trent Acid finds him and sarcastically congratulates him on his match tonight. She, Trent says he wants a shot at his tag team titles. Uh, Jay says the Briscoes do whatever Jim Cornette tells them to do, which I felt is a little kind of cuts his balls off a little bit. I know they're trying to sell the Jim Cornette partnership, but this idea, they almost just saying we do whatever Jim tells us to do. That's a bit, eh, come on. Yeah. I, I, and also like, if you're going to deliver like a, like something like that, you want to have it be delivered in like a good promo that explains it instead of just kind of like meekly saying, uh, we'll do whatever he says. Bye. Like that, which is basically <laughs> what all the whole thing was. Cause the Briscoes, as we have established and we'll see later, they are not good promos at all yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's crazy how good they were as wrestlers right off the bat. 
but yet how much they had to learn over time the promos. Like, it's weird how they're so fully formed in one way and so, like, not fully formed in the other aspect of wrestling. Yeah, I mean, I don't think they'd be offended by me saying they, I mean, because they're really good now, but they were really bad promos then. <laughs> like, really bad. <laughs> so, next up, we have the fight without honor, so a no-rules match. John Walters defeated Xavier via pinfall in 18 minutes, 25 seconds, after he hit a flipping powerbomb off one ladder through another in a spot that, I'll talk about in a second, went pretty wrong. Um, I can see this match being very divisive. I can see some people thinking this was a fantastic match, and I can see some people sit, thinking it's a hor- like horrible match. Um, I think it depends what you want. I refer to it as a big dumb stunt show. If you if you like that kind of match, you will really like this match. Um, for me, I kind of compare it to the last two Homicide Carino matches, where those matches were full of like weapons and stuff, but it felt still like the focus, especially at least in the Better Friends Stiffer Enemies match, was still on like Carino and Homicide and not the weapons. This is a match that feels like it's nothing. It's built around just crazy weapon spots like the whole match for 18 minutes is basically they wrestle for a minute one of them loses an exchange and sells while the other guy grabs a weapon and sets it up and then they do a weapon spot and then just repeat that over and over again for 18 minutes but some of the spots are really fucking crazy and entertaining like uh uh xavier does a springboard for 50 Onto John Walters, who's on a ladder that's suspended like between the ring and the guardrail. Um, takes an uh, Xavier takes an Alabama slam on a ladder and warps it badly. Xavier does a 450 off the ro- top rope to the floor through a table and like hits him really hard on it. There's a backcracker off the ladder, like just crazy stuff. And I, I enjoyed this match while well, still very clearly seeing the flaws. Like you can see it, it felt very much like an exhibition where guys have to lay too long to sell a thing. Um, and, and especially there is the thing where there's two ladders in this match and very early on, I think on the Alabama slam, the first ladder gets warped. And a lot of this match is spent with them desperately trying to get that this ladder to like not completely fall apart and stay in position for things. And it, it really broke like my suspension of disbelief because I was like, you have so many other weapons, including a larger ladder. Like, why are you working so much time babying this one ladder? But it's because they had pl- uh, plans for spots, including the big spot at the end that required both ladders and they couldn't just ignore, they couldn't just like throw away the one ladder, but it just creates some really weird moments. Like there's a moment in this match where they're setting up the, the bent warped ladder to do the springboard 450 onto Walters on the ladder spot. And Xavier at first does not feel comfortable with the ladder. He's trying to set it up. And he's like, Oh, this is too warped. So he goes back, grabs the table from the other ring, pulls it out and then goes back. It's like, eh, no, I'm not going to use the table. And then he just flips the ladder over. So that like the warped end is sticking up and then does the spot, but stuff like that, where they just spent so much time. Like at one point, I think one of them even seemed like they were getting angry at the ladder, which I thought was funny. Like, God damn this stupid thing. But yeah, um, we can go into the end spot in a bit, but first off, Matt, I just want to know what you thought of the match. Um, yeah, I have no qualms in saying, I thought this was the match of the night. Um, wow. yeah, I, uh, I 
you know, I see what you're saying. You know, I, I said it was a great, like, indie spot fest brawl. Like, that's what it was. It wasn't like an old school, like, intensity, like, every nuance counts brawl. But it was definitely more than just a bunch of random spots. Like, it was, there was a lot of intensity here. Um, I thought John Walters was really playing like the baby face who was just like out for revenge. I thought Xavier was awesome, honestly. Like I thought he was really good at projecting his character, like really great as a heel. His offense had a lot of pop to it. Um, you know, they were just they were doing all kinds of just cool stuff. And yes, there was some awkwardness, but I actually, you know, I'm, you know, it's hard. It's you know, when I say this stuff, it's obviously under the guise of. Back in the early 2000s, wrestlers did stuff that was way too dangerous, um, and they shouldn't do it, and they don't do it as much anymore, and I'm glad for that. But, you know, I've sort of, as, you know, while doing this show, I've sort of accepted that, that that's a change in the wrestling business, um, and that's just how it was back then. So having accepted that, I thought that the the use of the broken ladder was kind of cool because they were actually able to pull it off somehow. Um, and then they finally do pull out another ladder, but you know, just the, the springboard, the springboard, uh, like Arabian press through the floor in through the ladder on the floor. Like the crowd went insane for it. I thought it was super well done. Um, I, you know, like you said, the, the Alabama slam onto the ladder, like, and like, which, with the ladder bent, it was just that was just so crazy, um, right? The, um, the the final spot was a disaster, definitely like a total disaster. But it was kind of like a it was so disastrously car wreck ish that it was dramatic in its own right. Um, it was scary to me. It was and scary, I, like, but like the way Xavier Lance, I guess we should explain it quickly. Um, yeah. So I so okay. So so there were two ladders, right? Yeah. Um, and so one ladder was propped up in the corner, like, um, you know, over the middle rope. And the other ladder was set up, and the guys were basically climbing on top of the ladder. Both guys were on top of the ladder. And John Walters was attempting to do a sunset flip powerbomb off the ladder through the other ladder that was set up in the corner, but the ladder was too close. So Walters basically like landed like leg first and knocked into the ladder that was in the corner, and Xavier's head just like bounced off the turnbuckle. Um, and like, yes, you're right, it was scary, but you know, more than 15 years later, I knew that they were not injured, so, like, that wasn't the thing that, you know, overwhelmed my mind, if, if that makes sense. Gabe even screamed something like, what a disaster, or something like, after the spot. Yeah, it was a disastrous spot, but it, but you but it's not like Xavier didn't look like he, like, had a devastating move done to him, you and know? it was exciting. Here, yeah. Here's my problem with that spot, I'll just say, is... Um, when Xavier sets up the ladder, in, like, in the corner, it's so co- close to the corner... That, like, you wonder what's he doing, and you're thinking, okay, well, maybe Xavier is going to jump off that this big ladder that he, he set up it, onto a, Walters, who's in more in the middle of the ring. But then you go, well, why did he just spend all this time setting up this other ladder in the middle first? And then you see him, he grabs John Walters, who's lying prone on the mat, he's out, and he just lifts him up and puts him, leans him against the ladder, basically to tell him, like, hey, start climbing the ladder. And so then... Xavier goes and climbs the other side as Walter climbs his side. And then he goes to superplex John Walters. And it, the ladder is so close that he would not have, if he had, if Xavier had actually pulled it off, Xavier wouldn't have superplexed John Walters onto the ladder in the turnbuckle. He basically would have suplexed, superplexed him onto like the ring post or outside the ring. And it's one of those spots where 
it is so convoluted because he's doing all these things that don't make sense only to set up for the reversal. Like, the only move that makes sense is the move they ended up doing, which is John Walters reversing all that into the sunset flip powerbomb on the ladder. So that's that's the part more other than, like, it doesn't bug me as much, like, that the spot blew up, because, like you said, it ended up still looking like Xavier took a devastating move. It's more just the amount of setup Xavier did for something that didn't make sense just so he could get countered. Like, it kind of strained believability, I thought. Everything you're saying is true, but this was just, like, a big, dumb match. Like, and, like, it was done with so much intensity and fire, and it was fast-paced. It wasn't like, you know, like when um, the Sandman and Sabu did their tables and ladders match in November to remember, where there was just a lot of, like, setting up and missing and stuff. This wasn't like that. There was a lot of movement in this match, and a lot of spots connected really well. And they've been trying for so long to get this feud over as a top feud. And over the past few shows, it kind of started to click. And the crowd was very into this. And when when the match ended, John Walters and Xavier felt like stars, even though it was sort of like a um, smoke and mirrors. You know, it didn't really stick. But it did feel like it on this night. Um, the other thing I enjoyed was so the stuff with Prince Nana. So Prince Nana came out inexplicably in Xavier's corner, and he explains it after the match. But Gabe is still doing the is what's going Prince Nana doing here? Isn't Xavier in the prophecy? And CM Punk is like, obviously he's not in the prophecy. Like, like I mean, <laughs> listen, this is this is really obvious. And then like, Gabe says it again. Like, I guess Xavier must not be in the prophecy. Nana pulled the referee out to save him, and Punk is just like, do you ever listen to me? It's like, do you ever, ever listen to anything I say? And I really enjoyed that, because it was just like, he was saying what we were all thinking, and, and we were saying, basically, for the past, like, three months of shows, which is just, why would they think he was in the prophecy at this point? And why wouldn't they just ask him? Punk saying that to Gabe felt like the payoff of an angle that you and I created ourselves. Like, just this, <laughs> like us talking about every time, and finally to hear someone just tell Gabe, like, what are you talking about? Obviously, he's not. Like, I was just like, oh, this is like this is like the WrestleMania moment. They're wrapping up a big angle here. Like that's right. Telling Gabe that he's like, are he's crazy? And it was funny because Punk, like, I feel like in real life and in character, he had this kind of special thing where he was like one of the only wrestlers that had like the cachet to mock Gabe and and like openly be like, you're an idiot. And yeah. sometimes like this, it worked out. Like it was really entertaining. But one thing I want to say about this match is I'm probably making it sound like I didn't like it. I, I, I actually re- thought this was a good match. Like, I, I really had fun, and I think maybe the best compliment I could pay is it was an 18-minute John Walters-Xavier match, and I was never bored, like, not for a minute. It was entertaining the whole way through. But I, I guess what I am saying is it's a match that was really entertaining to me because I thought those big spots we described, especially like that Arabian press, is one of the craziest spots in Ring of Honor up to this point, and maybe in its history. And you could say that spot connects very well. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, and I agree with you. Xavier looked really good, his execution on a lot of stuff. And I, I, well, I guess what I'm just saying is it's a match where there are obvious like flaws to it, and either you're going to be so like bowled over by the cool stuff that you're not going to care, or you're going to be the kind of person that the flaws are all you're going to be able to see. So while I enjoy this match and you enjoy this match, I think it's going to be one of those matches where if people watch it based on our recommendations, some of them will say that was like one of the best matches in months. And some will say, I hated that match. This is everything I hate about wrestling. I think, okay, fair. Okay. So here's a controversial statement I'm going to make. Definitely. The match is not for everyone, but 
I think it would pro- it will probably be more widely well received than the War of the Wire match, which I thought was obviously a better match. But that match was so like dark and brutal that I think that's really not for everyone. Whereas this one has like very crazy, entertaining spots that I think will be enjoyed by a wider range of people. How about that? Yeah, I think this has higher highs. I would say like those big spots are just way more like like you were saying. It's less brutal and more just like crazy like big crowd pleasing spots um the other thing i thought i guess we should also mention is xavier bleeds real bad in this match i think i read some live reports saying that they could see at different points like blood squirting out of his head and i i didn't see that like i saw he was bleeding fairly bad i didn't ever see a moment where it was coming out but i i trust the live reports but one thing i want to go back to that you said which was that xavier looked really good here isn't it, like, sadly ironic that basically, like, Xavier works a few more shows and then he, I think he gets suffers an injury and then doesn't come back to Ring of Honor, except for a one-time, well, I think he has a couple appearances over the years, but really we're nearing the end of his spot as a regular. Isn't it kind of sad that this is, like, one of the star, make, like, one of the best performances he's had? Yeah, I'd say he's already is, given up on him. Yeah, I'd say one of the two best Xavier matches in ROH was this match. This and the Paul London matches for me are like yes, yes, far and away his best performances. But I think and, all in all, um, and we're not going to do the award this year, um, like but a biggest surprise, right? But um, yeah. Xavier in the second half of 2003 being one of the highlights of a lot of the shows that he's on is one of the biggest surprises for me of the year. He, it, it's crazy that like he probably got pushed too soon and in the wrong way, but it's like. In the se- like you just said, in the second half of 2003, he's better than I think a lot of the other mid-card names that, he's, that, that Gabe is pushing now. But again, it feels like he's already given up on Xavier. And the crowd already sees him in a certain way, unfortunately. Um, you know, I've said this before, but like, he really did seem like he sucked when he was uh, the babyface in ROH to the first half of 2002. So that, you know, I think really hurt him a lot overall. And even in this match, obviously the whole point of this match is to put over John Walters and elevate him to a new level. And, I mean, John Walters, I'm not going to say he didn't get over in this match. The crowd's chanting his name afterwards. But I felt like Xavier was clearly, of these two guys, the guy who was more impressive. Like, if you had to ask me, just after watching this match, who's the guy to push as a star after it, I would have said Xavier. Yes, absolutely. He really made a great showing of himself. Yeah, him. He made a great show of himself. So, um, other notes, let me just say, uh, we already talked about the great punk gay commentary. Oh, yeah, the Prince Nana thing. The Prince Nana thing I thought was a bit weird, too, where Prince Nana comes to ringside early in the match. He even interferes at one point on uh, Xavier's behalf. Uh, the ref ends up shoving shoving um, Prince Nana down. And the thing that kind of bothered me was, we'll get to, I guess we right now is the time for it. After the match... Prince Nana gets in the ring to help Xavier, and and Walters grabs the mic. He gets a Walt, John Walters chant. Walters says he has spent months trying to earn Xavier's respect, and he feels like he did tonight. He wants a handshake, but then Prince Nana grabs the mic away from Walters. Nana announces that the prophecy is done, and a new group called the Embassy is beginning. And he tells Xavier to shake John Walters' hand. Xavier gets on the mic first, and he calls Walters one tough son of a bitch. He says shaking Walters' hand signifies both that he's out of the prophecy and that Walters did, in fact, earn his respect. They shake. That gets a good crowd reaction. And, Matt, my one problem with this is 
I, 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 Gabe tries to do this sometimes, and I actually generally like it, where he tries to stack like a lot of big angles on his major shows to make the, the show seem even bigger and the angles seem bigger. And so obviously, I think that's why he picked Nana to start the embassy on this show and to have the announcement that Xavier's joining it. But I felt like they should have saved it for the next show because, one, the embassy is a heel group. And Nana's kind of being a face here after interfering in the match. He's basically like, yeah, you, you should shake his hand. And he did earn your respect. And then on top of that, I feel like if you put Nana on the this whole Nana angle on the very next show, that would help rehab Xavier after his big feud loss here. But instead, it's like Nana comes out to support Xavier. And in his very first match with him as like his steward or whatever, Xavier loses. It's kind of like, I just feel like they could have saved the whole amount of stuff for the next show. Yeah, well, as, to, to, as far as the whole face-heel thing, I mean, as we've discussed, this is a major issue that ROH has right now in general, which is, like, guys just do are not that clear-cut in terms of whether they're good guys or bad guys. Like, guys are real serious heels on one show. Their faces, they're almost face-like on another show. So I feel like that's this, very consistent with what ROH is doing right now. Um you know, and I think that actually will continue through the night, even as far as the whole face heel dynamics go. Yeah, it's just it, it, just a, another really bad example of Xavier's the heel in this feud. Nana behaves like a heel manager in this feud, but then Nana and and Xavier both do the very face like you know you've earned our respect handshake thing. But then starting the next show, the embassy's a heel group. So yeah, great example of just how inconsistent it is. And now we're going to a kind of an infamous match in Ring of Honor history, the Field of Honor Tournament Final Match. Matt Stryker defeated B.J. Whitmer via submission in 18 minutes, 8 seconds, when he made him submit to the striker lock. I'll note here, um, 18 minutes and 8 seconds is what we saw on the DVD. In my research, I found that originally this match went 28 minutes, 4 seconds. So they cut 10 minutes out of the match. Um, or the or the live report was wrong. One or the other. I saw numerous live reports of um, people saying this match was half an hour. So I'm going to believe it. And I did see one minor cut that didn't seem like they cut up much time. But and also one other reason I think that these reports are true is multiple reports said that Matt Stryker spent a lot of the early match stalling on the outside like a heel, and I didn't really see much of that at all in what we watched. So I'm going to assume that was largely what was cut. But, Matt, this match gets a... People really look at this match as just a piece of not good things. Uh, what did you think about um, this match? If it was really as bad as they say it was, and I you know, haven't watched it in years, so I sort of had that memory too. Um, but if it was really as bad as people say it was, they, again, did a really great job of editing it. Um because it wasn't it wasn't bad at all to me. Um, it was a decent match, you know. It wasn't. It didn't feel to me like it was the culmination of a big time months long thing, you know. And like as I was watching the beginning of this, I was just like, man, remember all of the mysterious hype for the Field of Honor at first? Like, <laughs> who's in it? What is it? Colt Cabana's trying to find Rob Feinstein. Remember, they would they would have like the Field of Honor is coming. Like, what the whole, is the Field of Honor? Like, like you're dying to know. Like Gabo, Gabo, like, and then it's just <laughs> and then it just ends up being Matt Striker versus BJ Whitmer in a match that was mostly on the mat. Um, but all things considered, it was fine. Like, um, 
they said at the beginning that B.J. Whitmer had a 100-degree fever because he had the flu. Um, if that's true, that's probably not a good thing for him to be doing because, I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the flu, um, but, you know, you don't really want to be doing a bunch of, like, arm drags. Um, have you ever tried taking an arm drag with the flu, Trevor? <laughs> Uh, no, but Matt, I have in fact had the flu in my 34 years on Earth, believe it or not. I uh-huh. have suffered the flu a couple of times. And I can agree, it's not good. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, he did his promo later. He didn't seem sick. Like, usually when you have the flu, you can kind of tell that someone is sick. Um, he didn't seem particularly sick, you know, during this match or later. So, hey, what a trooper he is. But um, as far as, um, you know, like matches and stuff, there was some fun commentary stuff, like. Um, Gabe, like, calling uh, Whitmer a horse, like, in front of Punk and really, like, giggling about it. Like, he's like, haha, look, this, uh, Punk's gonna love it when I say this. And then, um, Stryker puts a horse collar on Whitmer and Punk's like, how appropriate. Um, um, but Punk, instead of just teasing Whitmer this time, he teases Matt Stryker's looks, because he's like, because I guess Stryker kind of has long, stringy hair and a beard now, so Punk says that Stryker looks like he's been living under somebody's car. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed out loud when I heard it. Like, I I, I wrote in my notes, like, um, there was some bad Punk stuff where I felt like sometimes Punk feels like he's trying to do a bad Jesse Ventura impression, and, like, there was stuff where he... um, he said, oh, I, I think B.J. Whitmer gets his temperature taken anally. And he was, like, call, saying that uh, he's acting like a retard. But right. then he also said um, that B.J. Whitmer rides the yellow bus. And I think it's <laughs> a short bus. Yes. Said, What's wrong with you riding a yellow bus? Aren't more, most buses yellow? But anyway, I was just going to sum up with, I thought, like, some of those things were like the worst of punk on commentary. But then when he said that Matt Stryker looks like he's been living under somebody's car, yeah. I thought like, this is the best of punk. On commentary. Yes. I don't know if this is just a regional expression, but kids always used to call the yellow school bus, the cheese bus back when I was a kid. Um, but I think that's a regional expression. Um, yeah, I think. But yes, basically if punk saying he looks like he rides the yellow bus, it basically just means that he's still in school, which, you know, good for him. Um, <laughs> Take it but, night classes. But yeah, so after Punk says that, Gabe's like, this isn't a beauty contest, and Punk is like, you could say that again. Yeah, <laughs> Punk really does try to do the Jesse Ventura thing where he's like offensive and kind of racist sometimes, and like, I, I'm sure he's grown out of it, but like, like later on during the homicide match, he makes a comment about like how homicide like did something because he's Puerto Rican or something, like yeah. stuff like that. But as far as the match itself, you know, like Whitmer is working on Stryker's leg and actually pulls off his leg brace, which I or which I think is kind of a, a cool spot. But also then Stryker goes after Whitmer's knee. He pulls like he puts um, like a uh, he slams it into the timekeeper's table. And he's in control for a really long time. And Whitmer finally gets a big move with like a, almost like a Golden Gate swing, which is um, Donovan Morgan's move of all things to get back momentum. And the crowd is. I don't. They seem mostly into it to be like they're not on fire, certainly, but they're not dead. They're not booing anything like that. And I don't think ROH like edited the crowd noise. Um, no. I don't think they were they were doing that at this point. Um, so Whitmer went for the wrist wrist clutch. Striker blocked it. Went after Whitmer's knee, and then he's like chopping with his chopping with his left, and the crowd prop, pops big for the striker lock. And Whitmer is screaming, and he finally taps, and there was a big pop for Striker's victory. So like. 
It was too long, like, even in the edited version, but it was solid, I thought. You know, like I said, didn't feel like the culmination of anything. So in that sense, it was a disappointment. But, I mean, maybe it's just because my expectations were so low, but I thought this was plenty fine and plenty entertaining. Uh, Before I go into my thoughts on the match, I'm going to ask you a question. This is what I kind of uh, wrote down about my thoughts on the crowd. It felt like to me that, I want to know if you agree with this or not, it was like, 15% 15% of the crowd hated this match and unfairly hated it in the sense of th- there was a couple people catcalling and doing boring like two minutes into the match, which I felt like no matter how the match turned out, that's way too soon to start judging a match. Although maybe they edited something out and I missed it. Again, they edited it 10 minutes out, it sounds like. But I felt like if there was 15% of the crowd that hated this match, there was 20 to 25% of the crowd that was really trying to be supportive and like trying to start chants and like the match, and then the rest of the crowd was more quiet. I, I, it wasn't like the entire crowd hated this match. This wasn't that, none of that was apparent to me, honestly. Um, it just seemed like they were mildly into the match. Like, that's, that's how I took it. Like, they weren't shitting on it, they weren't loving it, but they were cheering it, they liked the striker lock, they popped for the ending. That's how I saw it. And there have been plenty of matches in time that we've been watching that the crowd has been dead for, that the crowd has shat on, and the ma- I don't think it was either of those things for this one. Uh, I felt like the crowd, um, it was quieter overall, but there were still people making noise. Uh, There's some reports sent to the Observer at the time that said that there were people walking to the bathroom during this match. I don't know if people were doing that. There are people that walk to the bathroom during literally any wrestling match, so like <laughs> that info alone is not like is, well, is not that damning. People deciding to use this as a bathroom break, like maybe more than usual. I guarantee you that during Hulk Hogan versus Andre the Giant, somebody in that ninety-three thousand people went to the bathroom. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure someone ate, like, a bad hamburger, and they probably rue the day, like, I missed the goddamn main event, but... Missed the body slam. (laughs) Um, Actually, I'll just read, before I get into my thoughts, there's a little Observer note where Dave writes, The only thing on the show that didn't work was the Field of Honor Tournament Finals, which which from the promotion going forward was actually going in considered the most important booking of the show. Matt Stryker beat B.J. Whitmer in 28 minutes, 4 seconds of a match described as boring, which died bad live. The match was supposed to be a setup for the pure wrestling title, which will be a focal point of the company next year. People started to walk out on the match and go to the bathroom. Uh, so that, that's what Dave's live, what reports he got sent to him. Again, I don't think if you watch what they left in the match, I don't think the crowd's that negative on it, but... Again, would you would you agree that they pop for the finish like in I did well this is one thing I'll say um I think like they were some people were genuinely happy to see striker win but I also think part of it was there's a point in this match and I can pinpoint it out the second time Matt striker puts BJ Whitmer in the horse collar um when when he goes out when he, when like Whitmer gets out of it the crowd boos and from that point in the match every time there's like a serious submission or pin attempt the crowd cheers loudly and then they boo when the match doesn't end so i think some people were genuinely just happy anytime the match was going to end and got mad when it didn't but i also think some people also really did want to see match striker win i think it was probably a bit of both I think some people were probably just making noise because it's like, yay, the match could end here, and then boo, it didn't end. Hmm, interesting. But in, in my opinion on this match is, um, I think it's a, it, technically, it's a perfectly average match. Um, nothing they do is 
wrong. Like, Matt Stryker even busts out a dive to the floor. You know, and most of this match is, like, everything in this match is very sound psychology in the sense of Matt Stryker goes after um, B.J. Whitmer's knee. Like you said, he tears off his knee brace and goes after it. B.J. Whitmer goes after Matt Stryker's uh, shoulder, which Gabe says... Uh, Stryker dislocated his shoulder on another indie show that weekend, I think, or a week ago, or sometime recently. In fact, right at the start of the match, as you mentioned, Gabe mentions that not only does BJ Whitmer have a 100-degree flu, he has a a fever, he has bone chips in his elbow he needs surgery on, and um, Matt Stryker has a dislocated shoulder. And I felt like it was Gabe trying to give excuses for the match, Punk at one point even says excuses, excuses to Gabe and kind of undercuts the point Gabe's trying to make. Like he goes, I'm doing commentary with malaria. So like, I thought that was another fun example of Punk kind of being a dick to Gabe. Uh, Gabe at one point says he estimates Whitmer's only at 60 to 75%. So they're trying to sell this as like, it's a miracle they're even working the match. My problem with the match is this. One, like you said, it, it did not feel like the big finals to a tournament and Maybe maybe that was just them being sick. It, it could be, but at the same time, they still decided to wrestle the match. Game claims on commentary they offered both guys the chance to reschedule this match for next month, and that they said no. So I have to judge what we're we're being given. My other problem with the match was it's a match built all around submission work, like two guys trading submissions, and it's hard to make a match like that work when. Matt Stryker only has one submission established, which is the striker lock. And BJ Whitmer has no real, like, established submissions. And I felt one problem with this match, if you watch, when you when people watch it, is um, they do some big submissions early, and then they'll go back to, like, really basic submissions. Like, one of the first submissions Stryker does in this match is what they describe as a variation of the striker lock, which is his finisher... And then, like, minutes later, later in the match, he'll be doing, like, just lightly grabbing Whitmer's knee and kind of twisting it a little bit or something. Like, there's not a progression. It's just them kind of doing some big submissions, then we'll do a minor submission. And I feel like this match could have been better if they if they built it from very low submissions up to the big ones and they had more submissions established. There's nothing technically wrong with this match. It's just... It feels like a like a mid card match that went on for too long, and I guess the other thing is neither of these guys have the it factor. Um, that, that you know, there's people that in wrestling that are really talented, and they also have that special selling you can't quantify. And there's been wrestlers in history where they don't have talent, but they have that it. Like I would say, Ultimate Warrior is one of those guys. Um, Sid. Sandman, the Sid, yeah, have that it factor, even if they didn't have a lot of talent. They have that, you can't take your eyes off of them. Uh, CM Punk during this match at one point says Matt Stryker has everything a wrestler needs. He doesn't have the it factor. Neither of these guys have it. I, I think I've well, also, also, they're not like interesting characters or promos at this point. Um, <laughs> let's be fair, but yes. Exactly. Like, 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 like Technically, they're very, very competent wrestlers. Like, all their execution in this match is good, better than all, some other guys on the card. You know, they're very prof- they're, they're very professional wrestlers, Matt. But neither of them are must-be fans of Stephen King because they don't have an ounce of it anywhere <laughs> on them. Uh, that, that's the horrible joke I wrote for the show. But um, They do a Salem's lot of chopping in this match. <laughs> Um, 
pristine. But <laughs> no, the, the, it's just there. Like, and I, I think there's probably something we should mention too. Is this match was probably did, done a disservice of having <laughs> to go on right after John Walters and Xavier doing every crazy thing ever. So that probably didn't help it either. But I also felt like that match was more intense than this match. And this match was, again, supposed to be this big end of tournament. Dave claims that he was told, like, in those notes, that this was the most important match from a booking standpoint. You know, this was supposed to be the match that elevated Matt Stryker to a new level. And it really, this is the end of Matt Stryker. Like, he wrestles for another year in Ring of Honor. But he never really gets a push again. No, he has he has, he has a match he has a match against Joe. Like that's almost like they felt like like they they have to give him the match because he won. But it's really like they're just burning it off because they're done with Matt Striker by then, and everyone knows it. It's weird. I don't know. This must have been the match that maybe soured Gabe on him. That's the only thing I could think of. Um, the idea that this is the most important match from a booking standpoint. I don't really like. I don't know what that means. Like. Like Matt Stryker had to win, but like, what was the booking? Like, like they just—it was like they have a match and Matt Stryker wins. That was the booking of the match. Like there was, there wasn't like there was some intricate thing they had to accomplish in this match. Like uh, they put I, they I, put Matt Stryker over. That could have happened in five minutes if they wanted to. Yeah, I, I think it's more the importance of the booking. Like this, like the most important thing coming out of this match is that, uh, or the show is that M- Matt Stryker is elevated to a new level, which clearly did not happen. Um. And the other thing that's a bit weird is Matt Stryker, the last show, BJ Whitmer does this dick move where it's a gauntlet match and Stryker's turned on the outside and he doesn't let him get helped by doctors or refs. He pulls him in and beats him and it's it's BJ Whitmer kind of showing a, a evil side, a mean streak. And then later on this show, he's going to turn heel. Yet in this match, Matt Stryker's the one that kind of does the heelish he really pulls at the uh, knee brace, and he does the figure four leg lock on the ring post, and won't let go when the ref's counting to five. I did. I did. I realized I did have that backwards in my recap. Yeah, Stryker pulled off Whitmer's knee brace, not the other way around. Yeah, yeah and um, and Stryker apparently in the part that was edited out was stalling a lot like a heel. He's acting like a heel. He's supposed to be the babyface, and meanwhile, B.J. Whitmer, who's supposed to be coming this bad heel, is kind of sympathetic because he spends a lot of this match, as you said, like he's taking a lot of the offense in this match. He's getting put in a lot of submissions and valiantly fighting through them. Right. It does feel like they forgot that angle that they just did at the beginning. Like it was like that, that angle never happened in the way they worked this match. But I would say in a vacuum, I would agree. This match is an average undercard match that goes on too long, you know, but again, with the caveat that I'm only seeing 18 minutes of it. And if I saw 28, I might feel a lot differently, but I think with the mindset that this is the end of a tournament, you know, a turn that hasn't had one really good match in it. And it's supposed to be a turn that's elevating people to the top of the card and all this stuff. The intensity and the quality of the match, both are a letdown. And I, it's, it's an average match in, in, in a set at best in a setting that you would expect at least something good. And I, I again, I feel bad because maybe it's just them being hurt and sick. But could be, although in the end, my, my main takeaway is like, cause my expectations were so low, it was probably a little better than I expected. I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing is if you watch like in a way, our review does a disservice to watching this match, because if you come in the way Matt and I did come into it, you'll probably be pleasantly surprised because it's not as bad as the legend. But if you come to it with us telling you, Hey, it's not that bad. Maybe you'll be like, well, it was kind of bad. I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're we're shifting the ex- uh, expectations in the wrong way. But 
Yeah, I, I would give this like a little bit below average just based on my expectations. But it, to, you were just two and three quarter star match. That's sort of how I would I would put it at. I would do like two and a half, two and a quarter. So yeah, we're not far off. But so th- so that's the match, and you know that's the end of the the field of honor turn. And Matt, I think when we started watching, I thought one of the things we, I told you was like we're going to get to see if is there any hidden gems in this tournament. Matt, well, I wouldn't say this tournament had any really terrible things. Like it was never painful. I don't think there was one hidden gem in this tournament. No, every match was completely forgettable. Yeah, so th- to me, it, more than this match, that's the biggest failing of this tournament. It's a tournament for mid-cars supposed to elevate them, and I don't think one guy got elevated. Uh, no, I mean, the closest person that I thought really stood out was Colt Cabana, just by virtue of being so much more charismatic than every other person in the tournament. Yeah, and even he, he could, you know, he could have done that regardless. Right. But... I, I think um, the other really telling thing is uh, one point during this match or this show gave us something like, you know, whoever wins this tournament is going to be shoot right up the card. Matt Stryker's next match in Ring of Honors on the next show is the opener. And I just looked over all his matches in 2004. Most of the time, he's like third from the bottom. Yeah, he's he's gone down the card since the tournament started, honestly. And, um, yeah, I mean, I really think that it was just pretty clear to me, and maybe justifiably so, that Gabe was very disappointed in Stryker when he gave him the ball, and um, very quickly gave up on him after this. And I don't blame Gabe for that. No. I think one good aspect of Gabe is I think Gabe does show in his Ring of Honor booking that if something isn't working, he will eventually cut tight. Like, he won't go down with the ship. He'll he'll change things. And he, certainly he did with his push of Matt Stryker. But I do feel like it's kind of bad when he spent months talking about how important this tournament is, and then he comes out of it with less of a push than he does going in. Like, like it, it kind of makes him look bad for hyping it. But I'm sure he didn't expect the tournament to be this mad. Yeah, now, and on the other hand, for Matt Stryker, he never really gave him a chance to work with like their top top talent. You know, like no, you never yeah. saw Matt Stryker against AJ Styles. You never saw Matt Stryker against Joe until it was a little too late. You never saw Matt Stryker against uh, Brian Danielson or Low Key or you know anybody like that. It was he was always working the same crew of guys, and also just incredible. Um, <laughs> And, you know, who knows what could have happened if he had actually been given a chance to mix in with the main eventers a little bit earlier. It's something we mentioned on a previous show, but he was a guy that for a while, early in 2003, felt like he had some steam. He was doing those matches with Chad Collier. That yeah, I liked his good. matches. I liked them, for sure. Yeah, yeah. he had that match with uh, Tom Carter, Reckless Youth, that was good. And, I mean, I forget exactly how much I liked it, but I, I remember at that point, it really felt like he had some momentum. And we mentioned on an earlier show that, like, he has so much less momentum at the end of this tournament than he did going into this tournament, a tournament that he wins. Like, in yeah. a way, it's kind of like this tournament that was meant to put him over ruins his career. It, it's so weird. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's kind of sad. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I would definitely, if I was him, being like, I wonder what it would be like if I hadn't been in this tournament and just had, going to what you said, a couple matches against top flight guys in the second half of 2003 instead. Maybe his push would have been stronger coming out of this year. Yep. But anyway, um, after the match, Stryker, Gabe says Stryker is moving up the card, and a bunch of random undercard dudes like the Carnage Crew, April Hunter, and Slick Wagner Brown come out to congratulate him, but they quickly cut away uh, from reading like notes. Apparently, there was a big uh, Matt Stryker like 
victory speech he gave that got shit on by the crowd, so they completely cut it out. I felt like even even just what they did was kind of bad, where I appreciate that tr- them trying to make it seem like a big deal, but I think it always comes off as dur- dorky when you do, like, the wrestlers coming out to celebrate with the winner thing, and it's all, like, really low undercard wrestlers. Definitely. Like it's, it's Slick Wagner Brown and April Hunter and the Carnage crew. Like, just, ooh. Anyway, um, at this point, something happened on the show that we did not see on the DVD, which was Bill Apter came out and presented Ring of Honor owner Rob Feinstein with the classiest promotion award from Total Wrestling Magazine. This is Mike Johnson writing. Mike Johnson writes, isn't that an award an oxymoron in the wrestling business? At this point, Mike Johnson says CM Punk came out and ripped on the crowd and took the award for himself because since he was straight edge, he was better than everyone and therefore was the classiest wrestler. Punk ripped on the crowd and argued with Feinstein. They actually tossed this together on the fly to stall for time as Christopher Daniels was late to the show because of flight problems. Um... Mike writes, I'm not sure this will make the video release of the show. The entire roster then took a huge group photo backstage holding the classiest wrestling promotion award. So, so wait, I just want to be clear. They will do the whole thing together on the fly, including even the concept of classiest wrestling promotion? Because if so, that's amazing. I don't, I have to think because the award was pre-made that that wasn't on the fly. It wasn't one of those certificates that they just printed out in the back? It sounds like maybe the punk thing and maybe even where they placed it was. And we'll get to it a little bit later, but Daniels apparently was very late. He did not even show up to the show until during the Joe-Mark Briscoe match. Ah. So apparently this was done to try and stretch the show out and give him some time. And that brings us actually to the uh, Ring of Honor World title match. Samoa Joe successfully defends when he defeats Mark Briscoe in 14 minutes, 44 seconds, when he made him pass out in the rear naked choke. I thought this was a very good match. I really enjoyed this, but it was also a different match than I expected. I thought going in, oh, it's Mark Briscoe versus uh, Big Samoa Joe. Mark will be flying a lot, running around, like stick and moving, and trying to be like the ultimate underdog. Instead, it's like Mark goes toe-to-toe with Joe. There's a lot of clubbering. Like, this is a match where... It, there's no thigh slapping, but there's a lot of really hard, like, legit thuds of, like, h- arms hitting, like, backs really hard. And just real hard, stiff hitting. Um, Joe lets Mark suplex him around a lot. It actually almost went too far in the other direction where I was thinking, like, little Mark Briscoe is really getting to, like, go mano a mano in a test of, like, fighting and, and strength and strikes with Joe, which almost took me out of it a little bit. But overall, I thought it was a very good match. And I thought Joe did a good job of... He worked this match where, at the end, it didn't feel like this was Joe's toughest match, but also didn't feel like it was a cakewalk for him either, which I think is the right balance you had to strike for this match. Um, the, something I posted on Twitter that kind of went a little bit... I, I don't know, viral is such a horrible word, but it got got tweeted around a lot, was Mark Briscoe with what I think is the best sell of a headbutt ever. Um, Mark tries to headbutt Joe a couple times during the match, and Joe being Samoan no-sells it. One time, Joe headbutts him back, and uh, Mark's standing in the corner, and if you haven't seen it, he basically falls, he basically like turns to spaghetti and goes completely limp and falls down like vertically. He implodes and he's wiggling his head back and forth and his head is like ping-ponging off the turnbuckles like he's a human version of Planko, that uh, 
Price is Right game, it's the greatest sell ever. And the crowd actually like laughs and then applauds because it's so great. And yeah, just a really good like stiff match. And before I go throw it to you, Matt, I guess we should explain maybe why it wasn't high-flying. Joe in the straight shooting interview talks about this match. First he says that he had a problem with this match going on this early. He says, I knew I couldn't main event this show above Muda, but I wanted to semi-main event this this show with this match. Joe says the whole week before the show, he was trying to talk to Gabe into semi-main eventing with this match, but it didn't happen because Gabe wanted to do the half Ring of Honor, half All Japan thing. Uh, Joe says there wasn't a lot of confidence in the Joe's Briscoe's program at this time, and Gabe thought that people you know wouldn't be that into this match because they knew Mark couldn't win. And then, but Joe was like, give us a chance. We can really make something of this match. But he didn't get his way. And then Joe says, this is how bad Mark's knee was before going into this match, where he had heard it in the Briscoe's SAT tag on the afternoon card. And he says Mark's knee was so bad that he was a limping around backstage in pain. And he says, me and Loki tried to pop his knee back into place before the match. And then he says, then when Mark comes out, his adrenaline got going. And he says, you could barely tell that Mark's knee was hurt. And I think Joe was completely on, like, if I was watching this match and didn't read that stuff, I wouldn't have known that Mark's knee was apparently in really bad shape. So, uh, Matt, what did you think about the match? This is one of the rare matches that we that come up sometimes where you definitely liked it a lot more than I did. Um, I did. I thought it was you know solid, um, but I didn't think it was particularly good in the sense of like like the the best parts of the match, and they were very good, were. Joe just being on fire. And Joe, like, this is a great example of Joe at his athletic peak in this match. Like, at one point, he does a tope, like, dive, like a, you know, elbow suicida onto Jay Briscoe, who's on in the corner, and just, like, lands on his feet after the tope, like, just, like, like it was nothing. You know, he he's, does a lot of spots where he, like, will very quickly brush off Mark offense and then just, like, smack Mark in the face. Or, um, or just start like doing like his hundred hand slap followed by an enziguri that the crowd goes crazy for. He very quickly throws Mark out of the ring, goes for a um, ole ole kick, but Mark runs away. He does it again later, and and Jay pulls him out of the way. Um, at one point, he does this whole like talking on the cell phone reference. Do it during the ole ole kick on Mark. Um, and I guess that's a reference to something that was current in the NFL, but I don't there remember exactly what it was. There was a player who did like a cell phone celebration. He got a $30,000 fine around this time. Yeah. And it must have been either Punk or Gabe that came with the idea for Joe to do that. Because did you notice on commentary, Punk said something like, I bet some real genius thought of that cell phone gimmick, he says. So I have to think either Gabe or Punk thought of that. And that's like an inside joke. Yeah, I'm sure that's what it was. You know, obviously, 15 years later, it doesn't ring as uh, relevant, but yeah. I appreciate, you know, I, the, the, no match is designed to be watched 15 years later by a couple of dorks, so <laughs> good on them. Um, but, you know, I thought Joe looked, like, great athletically. I didn't think the match itself had that much substance to it, and, you know, partially because of his injury. You know, I didn't notice Mark f- favoring his leg or anything, but I also didn't think he was as good as he usually is. Um, I really thought, you know, Joe shined in the match, but I didn't think the match itself was that much. It was, you know, Mark did, you know, go toe-to-toe with him a little bit, but Joe was on offense for more of this than he normally is in his matches. It was more of a squash than Joe's matches have been normally, certainly more than the one against Jay was. So in that sense, I don't know. I, I, it just, 
It didn't do that much for me, although I thought Joe had a lot of very impressive moments. Mark's big moment was that sell of the uh, headbutt, which I also noted, and it was great. And Mark is obviously super talented, but to me, this wasn't his best night. I think I appreciated the match because it wasn't what I expected, but I could also see why you'd be disappointed because I think one thing that is clear watching the match is that he was a lot more grounded than he probably would normally be. And like, you know, just not running around as much, not flying pretty much at all. I really did like the elbow suicida spot, both because it's just a cool move, but I also liked that, Earlier in the match, like you said, uh, Jay pulls uh, Mark off the chair so Joe can't do the uh, Olay kick. And then later on, when Joe does the elbow suicida, he ends up taking out Jay with it. And then he immediately does the Olay kick. And what I liked about that was it was just a nice little bit of storytelling, whether intentional or not, of like... um, it allowed him to do the Olay kick because otherwise, why wouldn't Jay have just tried to stop him again? Well, he can do it now because he took out Jay. And it's also, I can't, I can't overstate how impressive it is to see Samoa Joe diving out to the ring, elbowing a guy, and landing on his two feet and immediately like going to the Olay Olay kick like nothing happened. Like that is so crazy impressive. Yeah, and we've talked about a bunch on these recent shows, but like Matt said. Um, this is Joe's athletic prime, not his prime as a worker. Like, watch this match, and only watch those spots. Watch how easy he goes up for Mark Briscoe suplexes. Like, he goes up so light for a guy that big. Yep. He, he, he's just, just so... I mean, he's just such a special talent in terms of... He would become a better wrestler, but at this point, a guy his size that can come off as so intimidating, but also be so agile and quick... It's just like an amazing package of talent. He's not so far off from his peak as a wrestler, honestly, at this point. No, I mean, we're talking about... A couple months. Within months, he's, yeah, yeah. Within months he's having matches that people are going to give five stars to. So, yeah. yeah. But uh, 2003 is probably a year people don't think of as part of Joe's prime, but he's really good even in this year. Um, only other thing I'll note is Punk says that the Briscoe's parents are both in the audience tonight, so it was probably a good day for the Briscoe parents because you got to see three of your kids' matches in one day, so it's a nice, it's, it's a value trip, Matt. It's That's a, right. Yeah, good way to do that. So, and Philadelphia is very close to Delaware. <laughs> I, I don't know geography that well, so I'm going to take your word. <laughs> it is. I think you can verify this. <laughs> I um, trust you, Matt. The internet will show you the way. <laughs> Um, after the match, CM Punk makes his way to the ring while Joe and Mark are still in it. He gets on the mic, and he says the B card is now over, and now he's going to ruin the show. I guess one other thing we forgot to mention is that uh, Punk's been on commentary for most of the show up to this point. So, again, with Gabe, although he'll switch off in the second half and do it with Doug for the first time ever. Um, and probably the last time ever? I, th- I think so. I think it's the only time we ever got the Punk-Doug combination. Yeah. Um, Punk continues talking, but then Joe Pye faces him to the, and, gra- and grabs the mic. He tells Punk that unless he came to fight, to shut the fuck up. And this got a huge pop. And I thought this was just awesome because just like in the same way that I feel Punk is one of the only guys that had the stones to um, like mock and criticize Gabe to his face, it feels like Joe's the only character that really will just be like, shut the fuck up, Punk. Like, just stop it. And the crowd just pops huge for it. I wrote in my notes, Joe is really over tonight. Feels like he hit a new level 
like of stardom with the crowd. Like, he's just he feels like one of the most over guys in the company now. And it's great seeing the Joe Punk stare down like with the benefit of hindsight, knowing that it's going to be like, you know, probably the few that made ROH, you know? And, and like that, that, there's yeah. a seed there for it, and it's still like half a year away. Right. Uh, Joe tells Punk to get out of his ring, and then they have a lengthy stare down, trading words off mic. Uh, Punk tells Joe to calm down. He didn't mean to disrespect him, but his part of the show is over, and so he needs needs to leave Punk's ring. Punk tries to call out Christopher Daniels, ag- but then Joe grabs the mic again and says that if Punk doesn't leave, he'll have ninety nine problems, and that bitch won't be one. I, I bet you. I bet you that reference seemed a lot less trite back in um, in two thousand three when that song was only a couple of years old. All I wrote in my notes was the word topical in all capital letters. Yeah. Um, crowd chants, fuck him up, Joe, fuck him up. Uh, and Punk retreat. Punk, uh, you know, tries to back back up to Joe, but then he eventually retreats to the ring apron, so he kind of just, you know, like, give, he takes the loss here is the best way I can put it. The crowd chants, CM pussy. Then Joe leaves the ring, and Punk immediately gets back into the ring, and Gabe says Joe has made his point. So, again, I thought it was really cool that... Punk actually showed ass here. Like, Punk is this character who he stands up and has a, a comeback for everybody. And this is the one time where he had a real stare down with a big name, and Joe's the one guy where he backs down, which I thought really put over Joe. Um, yeah, and I, li- I like that, like, Punk just got out of the ring just, f- just for long enough for Joe to leave, and then he just jumped right back in the ring. Yeah, it's such a little shitty thing to do. Like, the second Joe's back, he's like, oh, I'm back running the show now. Like, you you just are doing that just because Joe left. But as Joe goes to the back, out comes Christopher Daniels, Dan Moff, and Alice in Danger, the prophecy. Um, Moff jumps Joe, and Punk jumps the prophecy, and it breaks down into a uh, big brawl with Daniels and Punk brawling in the ring. Uh, Joe and Moff are brawling on the outside. Daniels gets the advantage, and he goes to hit the Angels' wings when Colt Cabana runs in. He breaks it up. Allison Danger runs in to save Daniels, and Punk starts choking her with a towel. So, yes, 31 for 32, man-on-woman violence. Uh, Danger gets whipped headfirst into the buckle, which looked pretty ugly. Uh, Gabe calls Punk a scumbag for attacking a woman. I, Matt, <laughs> you don't get to say it's a great thing for 32 shows and then act like it's the worst thing ever. Like... It was amazing. It was amazing. Like, all of a sudden, Gabe has a moral center now. I mean, I guess it's good that he's growing, but wow. All of a sudden. I was, like, brushing my teeth last night, debating in my head, thinking that we were going to do the show today, and going, should I give him credit because, like, it's progress, or should I, like, call it out for being the most typical, hypocritical thing ever? It's just really, it's really funny, however you slice it. Yeah, I think it's both. Yeah. It's progress and hypocritical, but but, but yeah, I mean, it, it should be noted here that like CM Punk, they're portraying it as he's trying to murder Alice in Danger to the point where he literally says he's going to kill her. Um, Punk keeps choking Danger as Cabana holds Daniels and makes him watch. Punk grabs the mic and says an eye for an eye, saying he will kill. Alice in danger if he doesn't get answers about what happened to Lucy. He's implying that Lucy is dead um, when he's already established that she is fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, she'll show up, I think, on the next show. Yes. So, uh, Daniels finally gives in and says it was the prophecy behind the Lucy attack, but that 
um, but then BJ Whitmer hits the ring and lays out Cabana and Punk with chair shots. Daniels grabs the mic and reveals it was the prophecy that took out Lucy, but it was just their newest member that did it, BJ Whitmer. Uh, Punk is being dragged to the back, screaming at this point in anger. BJ gets on the mic and says he remembered what Punk did to him in Philadelphia earlier this year. Moth comes to the ring. And Daniels wants everyone to celebrate, but Moth is not cool with this. He grabs the mic and he wants to know what the hell is going on. He points out that two times this year, Moth swore on his recently deceased father's memory that the prophecy had nothing to do with Lucy's disappearance. Moth calls Whitmer a scumbag and says he can't stand him. Daniels tries to calm Moth down and says Whitmer joining was part of the plan from day one, and he didn't mean to make a liar out of Moth. Daniel says Moff asks Moff to suck it up and be a team player, saying that he and Whitmer are both key parts of his game plan. Moff is still pissed, but Daniels eventually talks him into t- making the prophecy salute and posing with the rest of the group. But it's clear he isn't happy. Um, I thought it's it's weird what to think about this angle. Like I heard live, they were acting like it wasn't. Live reports said it was acting like it wasn't getting over because they were already bummed out on the Whitmer match, but I thought it turned out like the reaction was okay. And I did like the, uh, the, the whole Moff is pissed thing because he swore on his father's grave and wasn't told about it, but I don't think they really go anywhere that interesting with it. Yeah. I, I mean, like you mean like after the show, they don't go anywhere that interesting yeah, with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, like it's, it's interesting right now. I don't think it really has a huge payoff to my memory. I agree. I don't know if that would have been different if, um, you know, Daniels yeah. stayed. Um, but yeah, I agree with you in the sense of like, I thought that the angle itself, like you can question the wisdom of doing the whole Lucy thing to begin with. But if you're going to spend months doing it, this is about as good of a payoff as you could reasonably expect, I think. A heel turn, a new era for the prophecy. It makes sense because, you know, Punk has been riding Whitmer um, for months since he knocked him out, you know, said he was a quitter, called, you know, made fun of him ceaselessly. So it makes sense that Punk, that Mo Whitmer would hate, um, you know, would hate uh, CM Punk and the Second City Saints. Um, Whitmer is a big, you know, he's, he's an up-and-coming star, so it makes sense that Daniels would want him for the prophecy. I think it actually was a pretty good payoff, all things considered. Um, and if you're going to do something with Whitmer, you might as well give his character a reason to exist and give him a mouthpiece in Christopher Daniels. I I think it was pretty good booking, and I, it seemed to get over fine. Like it wasn't like the biggest angle of of all time or anything. But I don't really have any strong criticisms of how they ended up pulling it off, other than you know CM Punk didn't have to strangle Alice in danger. Yeah, um, I, I think Whitmer is not a hor- like is not a bad wrestler at all. I don't think he's the most exciting choice, but. If you're going to give him something to do, this is a good thing to do. Like you said, Daniels is a good mouthpiece for him. It, it, they, and I thought, actually, the way they seeded this angle was really good. It, it was, like, uncharacteristically subtle by Ring of Honor standards. When you look at, they did that match, which Whitmer referenced months and months earlier, where it was Punk versus Whitmer, and it went to a draw when they both got hurt going through a table. And then afterwards, they had the backstage segment where Punk is being a real, like, Sn- like smug jackass to Whitmer and be like, yeah, you did okay, kid. And then, other than that, they never really talked about it, except they always had Punk be a real dick to Whitmer on commentary, like a little bit more than he would for most other people. And what I like is, so often with Ring of Honor, Gabe does not have any subtlety. Like, he'll be like, this guy definitely can't win a match he's going to win or something like that. And this was one time where they did not go crazy, you know, 
foreshadowing Whitmer. They did just a good amount, I thought. Yeah, they, it was perfect um, in terms yeah. of like the amount of teasing they did. That's why I say I don't really, I can't really knock the booking. Like I don't have anything particularly negative to say, other than like the Lucy thing was probably a bit much to begin with. Yeah, um, and then to get some background again on the uh, the Daniels lateness thing. Uh, I got this from a Christopher Daniels straight shooting ROH shooter review. Uh, Christopher Daniels tells a story about barely making it to Final Battle 2003. Since the show was so close to Christmas, Ring of Honor was having a hard time booking Daniels a flight that they could afford. As a favor to Ring of Honor, Daniels actually used his Delta frequent flyer miles to book his own flight to the show. Wow. The the flight stopped in Cincinnati and was supposed to leave for Philly at 3 or 4 p.m., but a stewardess showed up one to two hours late, delaying the flight until 6 o'clock, and Daniels is pissed he's saying the story like this flight attendant showed up it's like i don't know what you guys are looking at me all angry for i'm here aren't i (laughs) daniels apparently was like pissed so anyway he says that meant that we got from cincinnati to philly at 7 30 or 8 daniel says the whole time he's getting panicked phone calls from gabe and then he's getting panicked phone calls from allison danger saying gabe is panicked and then um you know daniel's like i'll be there as soon as i can uh, Gabe apparently said he wasn't even worried about Daniels missing his main event match with Muda, just about this BJ Whitmer angle. He was like, Chris, you have to be here for the angle. Not even the match. You have to be here for the angle. Uh, Daniels says he only got to the show during Joe and Mark Briscoe, but was told that CM Punk had ad-libbed a promo to buy them some time. Uh, Daniels' opinion on the angle itself, he says... I think it's hard to get angles like this across sometimes, especially the subtle points, especially on the awful house mics. At this point, if you get this shoot interview, uh, Daniels does a great impression of what it sounds like on the uh, Ring of Honor house mics where he goes, I'm going to use it. He literally does that. He goes, I thought this turned out well. He says, all things considered. Yeah, I would agree with him. I will say this, though. They could have done this angle if Daniels wasn't there. Like, it wouldn't have been as good, but they could have pulled it off. They could not have pulled off a match with Christopher Daniels and Dan Moff versus the Great Muda and Arashi without Christopher Daniels, though. That, I think, they would need Christopher Daniels for. I guess he could have done BJ Whitmer and Moff versus Muda and Arashi, but... I mean, you could have had a substitute, but I would have been disappointed. Oh, man, that match would have not been any good without Christopher Daniels. So, uh... Next, we're going to intermission, and Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with the Briscoes. Gary puts his arms around both Briscoes and said, it's been a tough first half for you guys. And he does it in such like a fatherly way, and then he laughs. Like, he's yeah. got his arms on the Briscoes, like, uh, you guys, it's been he, tough, hasn't it? He is ROH's dad. He really is. He's really likable, actually, you know, yeah. in like a nerdy dad way. Sometimes um, he is. Sometimes he is. Sometimes it feels like he's asking annoying, like prodding questions, <laughs> like that is that makes him not likable. But yes, yeah. When he's pissing off homicide, is like some people say you don't have the guts, homicide. Yeah, homicide's just like what? Now you got these thugs around. It's like oh, now you're going to be racist. Also, like okay, fine. So uh, the Briscoes say they still have the tag titles. They say Joe can come and try and take the tag belts from them. Then the Carnage crew stumble in. They interrupt. The crew say no disrespect to the Briscoes, but they need to know if Gary's learned what's up. DeVito says Special K has gotten to his family. DeVito also has this giant blue band-aid on his forehead, which is really distracting me. Uh, Gary tells them he has the scoop. Special K are headed to Chicago to tape Good Times, Great Memories with Colt Cabana. Then, in a, in a, in a really weird moment, DeVito says, Bro, 
that show ain't taped in Chicago. It's taped in this building somewhere. And I just thought this made Gary look like the stupidest person in the world. Like he believed that Good Times Great Memories tonight would be taped in Chicago when they're in Philadelphia. And DeVille actually told him, like, are you stupid? Like, it's in this building. That's fine. Anyway. That's fine. That's, I mean, what, that's Gary's role here. Well, I thought Gary's role was like, he's the investigative journalist that gets us all the scoops. And meanwhile, Gary's like, oh, they're definitely taping in Chicago. Yeah, I guess. Although I don't think you're always supposed to take seriously that Gary gets the scoops. You know, like he's supposed to be a little bit like annoying about it. I, I That's how my impression was. Like, I, I didn't think anyone was like, I, I never thought that Gary was like supposed to be portrayed as like the mean gene where he's supposed to take him really seriously. You know what I mean? I kind of thought he was at first, but then I feel like his character just became more just the guy who does interviews not necessarily yeah. it was toned down the gary's got all the scoops but he's a little bit of a butt of jokes yeah. my favorite is when homicide calls him michael <laughs> that was great so yeah anyway uh carnage crew storm off the angle continues and we start the second half now this is the four match series all japan versus ring of honor match one cm punk and colt cabana defeated Turmeric Storm of Kazushi Miyamoto and Tomoaki Hama in 16 minutes, 34 seconds when Punk pinned Hama after he hit the Pepsi plunge. Yes, this is that Hanma from um, New Japan recent years. And this is kind of a weird middle stage in his career where he had kind of gained some little bit of fame on places like Death Valley Driver where he had done the these really great Big Japan death matches. They were kind of like death matches for people that don't like death matches, where they actually had some good wrestling and crazy weapon spots. And he had left Big Japan, so this was like a weird middle time of his career where for like one year he had this tag team. I don't know why it's called Turmeric Storm. I don't know if they like the the spiced turmeric. <laughs> I, I I don't know. Good for you. Um, <laughs> very good for you. But uh, Matt, what did you think about? Do you think that these guys did put on their working boots? and decided not to treat this like a vacation. I think this was the best match of this half, um, personally. Um, of, you know, the, the, because the show was so good, they had two halves. This was the best match of that, the second half. Um, I, I liked the, um, the entrance uh, that Cabana and Punk had, because it was sort of like Punk was doing his brooding, like, um, like you know, you are now one of us entrance. Like, he was kneeling and looking all serious, and all of a sudden... Copa Cabana starts playing, and he like rolls his eyes, and Cabana comes up behind him and starts like dancing to the ring, and Punk continues to walk down like looking all serious, but only it's Copa Cabana playing. Um, I thought that was a really good couple. Yeah, I like friends forever. Yes, I like. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know where the where they are where they're at right now? Um, but uh, Chicago. Oh. No, um, uh, I think suing each other. Okay. Um, but is it amiable suing? No, no, no. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> So, um, as far as the match itself, I thought that, um, the early part of the match, the crowd was kind of quiet, like, they, you know, kind of were getting used to it, um, they're probably actually as quiet as they've been all night, except for maybe parts of the, um, the Field of Honor match, but, you know, and it's it's a little bit of a methodical pace, there's, like, you know, some fun stuff with Cabana, like, he, he pumps up his, uh, his boots, like, they have, like, the basketball pumps on them. (laughs) which I can't remember any other times that Cabana had that, but that's um, before Cena was doing that, definitely, right? Um, So I I thought that was pretty cool. Um, You know, and like at one point, Cabana does like a Billy Goat's curse plus a 
Camel Clutch with Punk at the same time on, I believe it was Miyamoto. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, but really, it's the second half of the match that gets things exciting. Um, you know, once uh, Hanma gets the tag, which isn't that hot of a tag, but they get the crowd into it. Because um, uh, he does a DDT, flatliner combo on uh, the Second City Saints, and that gets the crowd going. Um, punk like kind of like military presses Hanma off the top almost flare style and they just get into a whole sequence with a lot of moves so I guess I'll just go through a bunch of them like Cabana does a jumping Rana on Miyamoto which I think is pretty impressive you don't really see it that often from Cabana where he literally just jumps from the floor you know like Scott Steiner style into a Frankensteiner type move um and Miyamoto does a swanton then they do a chop battle between Punk and Hanma Punk wins that and then Punk goes for like a, a dive, a tope, but Miyamoto spears him, and everyone's knocked down, and um, and the crowd kind of does a, a standing ovation. Uh, at one point, um, Punk does a top rope drop kick, which is another move you don't really see too much from him, which I think is a pretty exciting sequence. Um, then there's a blockbuster by Hanma. Punk kicks out of that. That's like the first big kick out of the match. There's a doomsday superplex on Punk, where um, I believe um, Miyamoto is on Hanma's shoulders, and they superplex Punk. Um, Cabana saves that, hits the Asai suplex, I mean Asai moonsault. Um, there's an arm trap DDT by Punk, um, and that's a really hot near fall. Then Pepsi plunge on Hanma, and uh, Hanma takes it like I mean, I've seen this in highlight videos. Hanma takes this on the top of his head. It is, it is insane. So the Second City Saints win. It's one to nothing. As far as just like these tag team matches, which is a lot of cool moves down the stretch, I thought this was a really good version of that. I thought it was a quite good match, and the crowd got really into it, and I really enjoyed it. I agree with you on this match. I thought this was a good match, and I think I agree. I'm thinking about it. I think I agree with you. This was the best match, in my opinion, of the second half as well. Um. I would say, like, what made this match good to me was it didn't have a story, but it had a good flow. It almost felt like it had a story, even though it didn't, in the sense that, like, I felt like it just, maybe not flow, but good pace, in the sense that it started off slow, and it kept getting faster and faster and faster and and more exciting, and it ended at the right time, I felt like. Like, I just felt like they progressed it well throughout the match, where at first you're like, yeah, this is a bit slow, but then it just keeps getting better, keeps getting better, and then it ends at the really exciting point with that crazy Pepsi plunge bump, and yeah, I, uh, it was just a good, solid action tag match. I felt like Hanma and um, Cabana were the stars of this match, Punk a little bit. Like, it was one of those matches where Punk, other than a whiffed uh, spinning back elbow, didn't really do anything wrong. But there were a couple things, like even that flying dropkick, which was impressive that he tried it. But he doesn't ever look graceful on some of these sequences. He's, it, it just reminds you, again, how hard he had to work, how not a natural athlete he is, and how hard he had to work to become as great a wrestler as he did became, and how amazing that is to me. But I felt like Hanma in particular... He has real good charisma. He played to the crowd a little bit. And he looked for a guy that apparently was rumored to have been treat, one of the guys treating this like a vacation before they told him he couldn't. He had full commitment. Like, he takes a whip into the uh, the guardrail, and he goes, like, vertical. And on that Pepsi plunge, he did not have to take the bump that way. No. Like, Hanma, that's kind of the story of his career, is he just full commitment to every move, every bump. 
and that's probably why he uh, broke his neck in the last couple of years. But uh, yeah, he is definitely of of the, of the guys who worked their ass off on this show when they saw that big ROH crowd. Hanma is the one that you definitely can say, okay, like he he definitely did. <laughs> and, and I think Joe even said in his shoot, like he singled out Hanma and Miyamoto for guys that like were like stunned that the crowd really liked them and then worked harder. Like, I, I wouldn't surprise you if once they saw 1,500 people that were not, like, booing them as evil foreigners, probably, Palma probably got in his head, like, I should give these guys some effort. I should give them a show. And he did, I think. He he, he gave them the, whatever he got paid, he earned, in my opinion. Yeah, he was not great. That anyone, not that anyone in this match was bad, but... No, no, he, um, he I mean, I mean, Punk and Cabana were great. Miyamoto definitely stood out less than Honma did. But uh, but they were but they both worked really hard. Yeah. Um, after the match, uh, Punk screams into the camera. He declares war on Christopher Daniels. Then both teams all raise their hands together. The crowd lo- loudly applauds, applauds, and they chant for Ring of Honor. Then All Japan, and then Miyamoto holds and waves a Japanese flag. So they left that in a little little bit of color. <laughs> Next up is probably what was, I bet you, it's hard for me to go back in time in my head, but I bet you this was probably the, from a not Muda like, standpoint, the second most um, anticipated match from, like, a work rate, quote-unquote. I'm not, not trying to sound like Tony Khan here, but a work rate standpoint. That would be AJ Styles defeated Kaz Hayashi. Is work rate a bad, is work rate a bad word now? No, but we're all just, everyone's talking about, because, uh, Tony Khan did this interview with Dave Meltzer uh, the day before we were recording this, and uh, he used like work rate multiple times. Like he was from the '90s, it was like kind of like adorable in a. It was adorable, Matt. It was it was it was adorable in a nerdy way. Like he was like, did, did he give did he give this did he give the Scott the Scott Keith definition of work rate of like ratio of action to inaction, and you have to have a stopwatch <laughs> out to no. to see like what the actual work rate quotient was. We need you, like, we need you there. That's why, like, Tony Khan's apparently into advanced analytics. We need you, like, working out work rate formulas for him, working <laughs> for him. Like, clearly, Tony, you should hire this guy because his his work rate to rest hold ratio is 8 to 1. That's that's off the charts here in the PWG area. Like, anyway, um, AJ Styles defeats Kaz Hayashi via pinfall in 14 minutes, 49 seconds after he hit the Styles Clash. Um... The Observer wrote in their notes from, again, Dave hadn't seen the show at this point, but this was from the live notes he was sent. AJ Styles pinned Kaz Hayashi with the Styles Clash in what some considered the best match on the show. The fans reacted to Styles as the biggest non-Japanese star of the show. I'm going to say it. This was match was a little disappointing to me, and I would not consider this the best match on the show. In fact, I might... At best, I might say this was the fourth or fifth best match on the show. Mm-hmm. I think I would put the Walters match ahead. I'd put the the match we just reviewed, the turmeric yum yum tasty storm match ahead of this. I'd put the uh, for me personally. I know I liked it more than you. I'd put um, Mark and Joe ahead of this, and I'd put Danielson and Jay ahead of this. But it was not terrible. And part of me wonders if I was disappointed by this match because it was not as good as I thought as I wanted it to be, or if it's because it was a different kind of match than I wanted it to be, because I thought this would be a very fast-paced, high-flying match, but my memories were wrong. This is a very, like, grounded match with not a ton of flying, nearly none, actually, and it's more about these two guys hitting each other hard, um, Hayashi kind of grounding AJ, often with a chin lock, and there is stuff in this match, like, it does make sense in the... because, like... Uh, Kaz 
works on AJ's head a lot. He does a lot of chin locks. He does a brain buster. He does a pile driver. He does a cross face. So all that, you know, it's it's working on a body part. And there's some really good heated exchanges in this match. And, and again, they're hitting each other really hard. There, there's some crisp work here. There's a really cool spot where um, Kaz does a back handspring off the ropes. But instead of doing like a drop kick or something, he does like a back kick, like a mule kick, which I thought was cool. And this match is, is I would say it's like a low good. It, it, it's a solidly entertaining match, in my opinion. It's just not what you'd expect off of Kaz Hayashi versus AJ Styles on a big show. And I don't know quite why. I, I don't feel like I'm explaining great why it quite misses for me. Like, maybe you have a better explanation or maybe you disagree. Like, what did you think? Um, I basically agree with everything you said. Um, I would probably put it fourth best match of the night after um, Walters, uh, Xavier, Danielson, and Briscoe, and uh, Homa and Miyamoto against the Second City Saints. Um, I thought that the first few minutes of the match were like what I would have wanted the match to be. I thought the opening of the match was awesome, um, especially the um, there's this part where okay, so AJ um, does this thing where um, Hayashi whips him into the guardrail and he jumps over like he always does, but AJ just keeps going. Like, he just... And he disappears into the crowd. And, like, then he eventually just, like, wanders back through. That and, was so weird. If anyone knows what he was doing, tell us. Yeah. Um, it was interesting. And then they get back into the ring, and all of a sudden they do this, like, no-selling chop battle, and AJ is, like, super fired up. And it turns into this forearm battle, and AJ ends it with, like, this huge kick to the leg. So Kaz says, fuck you, and kicks back and brainbusters him, and the crowd's going nuts. And that was awesome. And then at that moment, Kaz p- puts on a chin lock. And the match just slows to a crawl. Like, and that, to me, is where the match kind of gets off its game. Like, Kaz, I think, was like, he might not have just been immensely prepared to work a match at that intensity. And he just, he just doesn't after that. Like, there's some other cool spots, like, like when AJ hits his big discus clothesline, but Kaz clotheslines him at the same time, and they do a double knockdown. Um... Um, and then, you know, there's a Crippler crossface, which uh, AJ comes close to tapping. And and then, you know, shortly after, AJ just wins with the Styles Clash. So I thought the match, like, at the very beginning was on pace to be really good. And for whatever reason, Hayashi was just like, yeah, I'm just going to gonna slow this baby down. And it wasn't long enough to justify being slowed down to that degree at that point. You know, because it didn't go on that much longer. So yeah. to me, that was the flaw of the match. Like, it was just like, they toned it down, but didn't really bring it all the way back up for any length of time. It felt, yeah, and it felt like it was a weird match in structure because, like you said, the first few minutes were the best minutes, and they were, like, super, super, like, 9 out of 10 intensity level. And then the rest of the match, it's more Kaz grounds AJ, lets him up for a couple hot spots, grounds him again, back and forth like that. It was, like, such a, almost like the match in reverse. Like, the hot stuff should be at the end, shouldn't it? Not, yeah, I mean, like you can... Hot start the, Oh, sorry. Okay, you can start off hot like that, but then you want to be like you assume that you'd build it back up for the end. Yeah, but it feels it, like the match ended. Bef- yeah, it feels like the match ended before they could do their final like eight minutes. You know. Yeah, and I would say this is the first of maybe multiple examples on this show where I didn't feel this way about the last match, but on this match, maybe Kaz was not. I don't think he was mailing it in, but I also don't feel like he was giving his absolute full effort here. I agree with that. Uh, the, the, he's not on vacation, but he's not at work either. 
is the best way to put it. He's somewhere in the middle. Um, I guess this is also the first match where we get just Doug and uh, Punk on commentary. And at one point in the during the match, Punk asks Doug's IQ, and Doug says he's 124, and Punk says he's a Mensa level genius at 138. One, I don't know if those. I wonder if those are true or not. And two, it's funny that like. They just both know their IQs off the top of their head. Like, I'm a 124. I think Punk was probably messing, like, making fun of Raven there, right? Because Raven, Raven, you know, is in Mensa, isn't he? Or he says he is? I I think, at least he says, yeah. Yeah. At least he says he is. I'm I'm pretty sure that's what that was all about. Oh, and one other tidbit, I don't know if this is true or not. I I would guess it is. But Doug actually said during this match that uh, Doug says these two wrestle each other in WCW, which obviously we know is true. But then he says Kaz Hayashi is the first wrestler to ever take the Styles Clash. I don't know if that's true or not. It would be interesting if it was, I guess. But um, moving on, we get the semi-main event. And from a work rate standpoint... This was probably going in, I bet you, the most anticipated match on the card. It is Satoshi Kojima defeating Homicide, scored to the ring by Julius Smokes, via pinfall in 13 minutes, 11 seconds after he hits a lariat. Um, Matt, I I guess I'll hand it to you. There's obviously kind of a big story that happens within this match. Yeah, so Homicide never gets to really do much in the match, right? Because the early part of the match... You know, like the big the big story is like Loki is in Homicide's corner, and you've kind of talked about that before. Basically, the deal is Loki like Loki was in town for a three PW show, and Homicide just asked ROH if he could be in the corner, and so they said yes. And Monsamac is there too, and they both they all mention on comment like Gabe mentions on commentary that you know they had a sit down because you know last time we saw Loki in ROH. You know, they never mentioned about how Loki bailed from the match, but they did, you know, they were feuding, they were calling each other bitches and all this stuff. So Gabe said they have a sit-down, and now they're friends again. Basically, that was what it was. But in reality... Gabe tried to tie up that loose end, at least. Yeah, I appreciated that. But, you know, uh, according to the Observer at the time, there were no plans at this point to to use Loki for anything more than this. Although he does make a one-shot appearance on a couple shows after this. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, so that was the big thing, um, you know, the, but really it's Kojima, um, basically, you know, he's doing like comedy stuff, like he's, uh, he's like choking homicide in the ropes and the referee is counting and, and Kojima's like, I don't understand. And then he does it again and he's like, I'm Japanese, God damn it. And like, but he says it like in perfect English and they're like, he just spoke English. And, you know, he's doing a lot of, like, crowd work and stuff, and he seems to be having a blast, and the crowd loves him, you know, and they think he's he's great, he's, like, crotch-chopping in Julius Smokes' direction. Um, <laughs> Homicide does a great tope, uh, you know, it seems really on point, and then Kojima belly-to-bellies him on the floor, Homicide lands on his head, the announcers immediately acknowledge it, and this time it's not obnoxious, because it was very obvious that he landed on his head. Yeah. And from the from that point on, Homicide can't really do much of anything. Like he does, he does his offense, but he does it very slowly. He repeats spots a couple times. Like he's clearly completely out of it. Um, you know, like he hits, he goes, he goes to hit an ace crusher, but like he turns into a DDD because he can't do it right. Then he hits an ace crusher. Then he hits another ace crusher because it seemed like he forgot that he did it already. Um, Kojima hits a lariat for two. Um, then another for three. And so he wins the match, but really, you know, it's mostly the story of Homicide 
has clearly been seriously injured, and the match fell apart because of that. Uh, and it could have been something really good because the crowd really loved Kojima early. Yeah, this turned out to be obviously not good. It, it, it's it's weird because there is, to me this was a story of two matches where the first half it was interesting to me because like Kojima, I don't think was treating this match seriously. Like he was he, he was treating it like he was having more fun interacting with everyone else. But homicide, like he was, seemed to be fuddled by Julius Smokes, and then eventually he started like cross, like you said, crotch chopping him. He was playing to the crowd a lot. He was interacting with the referee at one point in this match. I think right after homicide gets like rocked, he grabs a Kojima grabs a camera and like takes a picture from someone in the crowd. Um, he's just out, like Kojima's having a lot of fun just getting the crowd to laugh and the crowd's eating it up and it's really entertaining and Kojima's really charismatic but at the same time I felt kind of bad for Homicide because it felt like Homicide's taking this seriously and wants to have a really great match and Kojima at least in the first half is just fucking around and entertaining the crowd and having a good time but not really it's felt like taking it seriously and what I'll always wonder is would the second half have been like really epic because I know Homicide has said how that's one of the biggest disappointments of his career because Kojima, for those who don't know, was one of Homicide's heroes. You know, he took some of his moves from Kojima. And, like, I think he said in one interview, I found that, like, he's really sad that they didn't get to see, the fans didn't get to see the rest of the match they had planned. So, and I've definitely seen matches where guys are, like, joking around, and then when it kicks into a high gear, they stop joking around and it becomes this great match. But, obviously, we'll never get to see that because... Once, like like everything Matt said is true, once Homicide gets knocked out, or not knocked out, but knocked loopy, he still is doing moves. It's just, Homicide has said in interviews, he doesn't remember what the rest of the match was supposed to be. And he's repeating spots, and he just... Yeah, and by the way, by the way, on an honorable mention uh, a couple months ago, they did a show on Final Battle 2003. And Jeff Schwartz actually says that even as of like a couple of years ago, Homicide was still talking about how disappointed he was in this match. Like it's still something that eats at him like so many years later. Yeah, and I've heard that show too. And again, an honorable mention, another really good Rain of Honor podcast, and they've done a recent episode on the show. So if you can't get enough of Final Battle 2003 talk, there's a great place to go for that after you listen to us. And just and check out and check out that show in general. It's awesome. Yeah, but yeah, yeah I actually found a couple of quotes from Homicide from interviews in recent years. Um, there's one with a website called The Indie Corner where Homicide says. Kojima gave me a belly-to-belly overhead suplex, and I got knocked out. All I remember is Steve Mack, Lowkey, and CM Punk checking on me. The next day, I traveled with the SATs and All Japan roster to Texas, and all I'm thinking is, I hope I don't have a concussion, and I'm thankful I didn't. Kojima's the man, and I want a rematch, this time with no outside-the-ring suplex, LOL. How did he not have a concussion if he can't remember? That, that's the problem. I'm. I feel like there there was this weird defensiveness with concussions because remember a few shows ago when we talked about the Dan Moff uh, low key kick where low key knocked Dan Moff completely out cold. I remember the Observer reporting at that time was he didn't even have a concussion. And I was like, how can he be knocked unconscious and not have a concussion? Like, yeah, what's a what's a what's a concussion then? <laughs> like, did did, did did people in two thousand three not know what concussions were, or were they just in denial? Like, if your brain hits your skull so hard that you lose consciousness or memory, I hate to tell you this, that's a concussion. <laughs> 
you know, a concussion is when, for those who don't know, is when your brain, your brain is sitting in your skull and there's a little bit of fluid that's supposed to like keep your brain from hitting your skull. When your head moves so fast, it hits the side of the, your, your brain hits the side of your skull. It bruises your very fragile brain. That's a concussion. So uh, it's really weird here reading multiple injuries in 2003 where guys clearly got severely effed up and like newsletters report, oh, didn't have a concussion. Like what? What the fuck are you talking about? Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Um, uh, was, uh, there was one other interview I found with Homicide where he did an interview with a guy named uh, Alan Wojcik. I think I might be mispronouncing that. I apologize if I am. But Homicide said, you know, people say it's fake, but I was legitimately knocked out. Uh, I admire Kojima. He's a hero of mine, along with Masachono. He says, we had a great match right up to the moment I got knocked out. I don't know if I would say it was a great match. It was mostly, again, Kojima fucking around and having a good time. But for, but for like six or seven minutes, I mean, it was a very entertaining match. Let's say that. It was, it was very entertaining. Homicide then says, I forgot the rest of the match. It was the biggest match of my career. But one day I will get a rematch and it will be a thousand times better. I guarantee that. Hmm. And that's the part that's a little bit heartbreaking because, yeah. I mean, Homicide's in his 40s now. Kojima I, is... Probably not that long for the world either. In, in, uh, not in, oh, yeah, yikes, in, 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 dude. He's not going to die, but uh, <laughs> he likes bread. He's not going to die. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad that clearly this is one of his heroes and someone he was super pumped about wrestling, and I don't think he's ever going to get that chance. Like, for all those people that do these weird, I know you'd have to get all, I mean, New Japan's permission, but people like to do all these, like, crazy Joey Janela things. Someone, if you can, try and book Homicide versus Kojima again. Like, do what you can. Help help a guy out. Well, Joey Janela, um, you should do it. Like, exactly. who like, else is going to do it? should be pushing, I mean, booking. Do a Kojima Homicide match. Just one. Just Ga- give him the second chance. Gabe, do you talk to Joey Janela? Tell him about it. I mean, I bet you there would be interest in If you really just told the story in, like, a five-minute documentary... Like, there's a story to be told there of, this was my hero, I had one chance with him, it got ruined, all I want to do is have this match. That would draw interest. You and me, our voices are going to be in a video package for a match. (laughs) That would be great if we were, like, the reason, like, we started some crazy, like, word-of-mouth campaign. Uh, I don't know if I want to go that far, but... Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen, but okay. Yeah, but anyone that... We do have some people that work in indie wrestling... Just, I know it's very unlikely, but it probably would mean the world to that guy. So, maybe try it. But, uh, so that's that. And then, after the match, Homicide lays on the mat as his posse checks on him. Eventually, he gets up, and after some hesitation, he shakes Kojima's hand, which is a pretty big deal, because Homicide was not a handshaking type character. He would occasionally, but... And then I wrote in my notes, poor Steve Carino, he never knocked out Homicide, and he didn't get a handshake. Because we just had the last show where Karino really wanted that handshake, he wouldn't get it. Kojima then, Kojima then gets on the mic and he talks a little bit, and he says he wants to come back. And I write, I thought you didn't speak English, Kojima. Here you are talking. I mean, it wasn't great English, but it was clear English. Uh, then we cut to a very brief backstage, cringeworthy segment, where Jerry Lynn is doing a backstage promo <laughs> he's not on this show. And he goes, huh, Ring of Honor, pure wrestling title. Now that's what I'm talking about, because that's what, exactly what I'm made of. And that's the entire segment. He's made of the pure wrestling title. <laughs> it never even existed. It had, didn't even exist at this point, but he was made of it. And again, it's such a... Like, like the 
the depth, like you mentioned this earlier, what pure wrestling is is getting weirder and weirder because at different times this year, Gabe has been like Matt Stryker versus Chad Collier. That's pure wrestling. But then he's like um, Brian Danielson versus uh, Jay Briscoe. That's the pure wrestling. And now it's like Jerry Lynn. That's pure wrestling. It's like all these things are kind of different. Yeah. Like, well, clearly the thing that makes something pure wrestling is that you have a limited amount of rope breaks. <laughs> That's the thing that I've always been talking, Matt. Like, all these times I've been watching great wrestling matches, I've been like, there's too many rope breaks. <laughs> yeah, it's not fair if they get all these rope breaks. I want to have to keep count during a wrestling match. Exactly. Where, where, where's the wrestling for me, Matt? It's coming in 2004. But finally, we get the main event of the night. And all, uh, technically, it's an actual official All Japan Pro Wrestling World Tag Team title match. They even have Steven DeAngelis read a written proclamation signed by Steve, I mean Stan Hansen, All Japan official style. It's Arashi and the Great Muda defend and defeat the prophecy Christopher Daniels and Dan Moth with Alice in Danger in 16 minutes, 5 seconds, when Muda pinned Christopher Daniels after hitting the Shining Wizard. Matt, what did you think about the effort level in this match and so much in, in the reporting was made of the effort level. And also the re- reporting said that the loudest pop in ring of honor history was in, when uh, great Muda hit the shining wizard. Do you think that was the loudest pop we've heard so far? Cause I don't know. Mm, nope. Um, it wasn't. So he got a very big pop when he came out, his, his like, and now his like introduction got a pretty big pop. Um, the Shining Wizard got a quite big pop, but none of it could match the pop that Just Incredible received when he made his surprise return in Massachusetts. I think you can agree with me on that. Like, that just sounds glib, but Matt is telling the truth. Like, as weird as it is, Just Incredible got a bigger pop in Boston than the Great Muda Copper. I, I don't know why, but he did. Uh, it, uh, it's not a lie. No, it's true. Um... But it was a good pop, you know. I'm not, no, you know, nothing, nothing to sneeze at. As far as the match itself, um, you know, by the end of the match, Muda was, you know, Muda did what he needed to do. You know what I mean? Like his effort wasn't astounding, but he wasn't super lazy. He brought a lot of intensity to everything he did. You know, like his his timing of blowing the mist in the air, right? The the the, um, the, the green mist in the air to scare Daniels. That was really good. Then at the end, when he blew the red mist into Moff's eyes, you know, like all that stuff was great. The timing of the Shining Wizard was really good. Um, really, though, the the prophecy was who made the match. You know, like. You know, Moff did a lot of, like, stooging and being like, oh, what'd he do? Where'd he come up with that miss from? How'd he get out there? Referee, check him. You know, all that stuff. Daniels kept the match moving. You know, I'd say the match wouldn't have had a lot of movement if it wasn't for Daniels. Um, But, you know, Muda, I don't think, did so much more than you would have expected him to do on this show. He didn't certainly didn't put in an epic performance or anything. Arashi really sucked. Um... (laughs) Like, he, he he did one cool spot where he did, like, a standing drop kick, right? And that was kind of cool. But I had even, like, the um, even the announcers, which Punk and Doug, were surprised by that because clearly they didn't want to say it, but he had sucked until that point. <laughs> it, almost going so far as Punk being like, um, you know, I don't know how much experience this Arashi has, but, you know, Mood obviously has the most experience, but, you know, Arashi might be inexperienced. And then Doug is like, uh, I got to check on this, but I think he was wrestling, like, 15 years ago at the Tokyo Dome, or, like, at the Crockett Cup. Yeah. Like, Ar- Arashi was 41 or 42 at this point. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> 
<laughs> so like he was he was just so shitty that they were like oh he must just be totally like some green sumo wrestler that they plucked out of thin air and you know even me at the beginning was like why did they even have him here and i'm like oh he was one of the tag team champions i guess like but whew, boy was he bad like just everything he did was slow he had no charisma i've never really watched him in japan maybe he's much better there um but he was bad here like really bad um, he made the finals of the champion carnival against Kojima th- this year, like in 2003. I was going to say, this year? <laughs> no, no I, I mean, the, year, the yeah. year that we're covering here. Yeah. Like, th- they, they were pushing him big. Yeah, at 41. Um, yeah. But I, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, the match itself was not much. You know, I think Daniels kept it entertaining. It was a nice little showcase. I think the crowd got what they needed from the Great Muda. I don't really have any strong complaints. I don't think anybody could have reasonably expected this for this to be a great wrestling match. It was an opportunity for Muda to um, to appear in ROH and like do his big moves, and he did them. He even teased going for a moonsault at one point, and Doug was like, "Man, could you imagine if he pulled it out in the U.S.?" He didn't, um, but he did. That, that's why I wanted to bring up. Oh man, you finish first. But he did the Shining Wizard, and it was good, and they won, and everyone was happy. So, all right, so what, what I thought about this, I thought this match was, like, really interesting as a time capsule in the sense of this was, like, the equivalent of, like, the formerly big band, although, I mean, Muda was still a big star, but, like, the band that plays the county fair, and they're not trying super hard, but they play the hits, and so people are happy. Like, Muda spent, this was a very simple structured match where Allison Danger interfered at one point, and from then on, um, Muda was the face in peril for quite a while and just laid on the mat as Daniels worked over him. And, you know, Muda didn't... I, got, I thought if Mu, if this was Muda trying hard in the good gear, quote-unquote, I'd like to see what he would have done if this match was a vacation. Because... Fewer, fa- really, fewer facial expressions. Yeah, like, yeah, he did have lots of charisma and emoting, but, like, he really just did some selling and some emoting and some of his greatest hits like he did the big like power drive elbow he did two missed spots he did the shining wizard at the end for the finish so he gave the fans the hits and what i think is interesting from a time period is the fans were more than happy to just see the greatest hits and i feel like fans today have a higher standard like i feel like today if all a guy did was like his three or four signature moves wrestling fans today are exposed so much more often to like the big japanese stars they'd be like uh, like Okada only did that. He only did the Rainmaker. He didn't do anything else. He just laid around. Like I think people, I wouldn't. I don't want to say spoiled because I don't think it's wrong to expect more. But back then, like watching this match, the crowd did not was. Per, it seemed perfectly happy that that's what they got from Muda. Like, I, I I mean I'm going to disagree with you there actually. Like because I think yes for like an Okada I agree with you, but for someone who would be the equivalent of a Muda like Muda was clearly a guy who was like on the tail end of his career, right? Like, everyone knew his knees were shot. And I think someone, the equivalent of that, wouldn't be expected to do much. Like, I saw at the Joey Janela show before SummerSlam, it was it was um, Jinsei Shinsaki against, um, against uh, Joey Janela, right? And, like, Shinsaki didn't do anything that great. Like, you know, it was a pretty slow match. Like, it was not that long. The crowd still was pretty happy with it. You know, I think it's... It, it, when someone's considered a legend they can get away with a lot less than somebody who's considered like a top worker in their prime. If that makes, does that make sense? You know what? You're, you swung me over. You're right. Cause I think I forgot. 
I forgot how much how much of a legend he is. Like he's not he like it's a weird thing to talk about Muda in two thousand three because I think he was two thousand one's Wrestling Observer Wrestler of the Year. Right. He like he had like an amazing like Renaissance year in two thousand one where he had these matches against like Tenru and stuff. Yeah, but uh, but you're exactly exactly right. And I think the problem is. I, I, I kind of forgot that, like, by 2003, he was more back, I think, in the just be happy he's still walking mode. Yeah. Like, even though two years earlier he was this guy that was, oh, he's revitalized and the best wrestler in the world, at this point, I, I think people were just happy. And like and like you just said, people, if they know a veteran is like a legend and is physically declined, they are more accepting. So you're right about that. Okay. Matt, I might have been wrong about that, but how about this? There's one more change in time. Don't you think it's weird? Well, not weird, but isn't it kind of surreal that um, we got this with Muda and we got this with Kobashi, where both guys, when they came to Ring of Honor, thought that they were going to have to be heel and that no one would know who they were or like them? Like, that's never going to happen again. Definitely not. Like, it's so weird. We were, like, the last generation to see that because, you know, we'll get into it years later, but if we're not dead by then. But, like, Kobashi and Joe, Kobashi's like, oh, I play the heel. And Joe has to talk him out of it. Like, yeah. no, everyone is going to love you. And it's the same here. Like, if I can find another note from uh, the Christopher Daniels shoot interview, let's see if I can find it here. Um yeah, this is Christopher Daniels on the match from his straight shooting interview. Daniels says it was a great honor to work Muda. He never thought he'd get an opportunity to wrestle him and describes him as beyond a star. Uh, Daniel says Muda was easy to work with, but the funny thing was Muda thought he should work heel, and Daniels had to tell him that Muda could stab him with a knife and the crowd would still cheer him. Daniel says he thinks Muda finally realized what Daniels was talking about only when he made his entrance and heard the reaction. Daniels thinks Muda didn't realize what wrestling fans really thought of him, that maybe he thought it'd be like it was in the dying days of WCW. And then Daniels goes on to say that the match itself was only so-so, but was designed to showcase all of Muda's stuff, and it's not like Muda was moving fast at that point in his career. So, it's just funny to think that Daniels had to, like, tell Muda, like, he didn't believe it. Like, you're not going to be the heel here, no matter, even if you want to be the heel. And nowadays, wrestlers, they're never going to have a moment like that again. Every wrestler knows that they've got fans around the world now. Yep. I mean, the internet now is so ubiquitous. You know, there wasn't YouTube in 2003. Um, there certainly wasn't, like, streaming services for all the different, you know, in, uh, for all the different Japanese shows. If you were an American watching Japanese wrestling, you really had to go out of your way to see it. And now you really don't. So that's, you know, and I think everyone knows it, and that's such a huge difference. But, uh, uh, yeah, so this match, a little bit below average as a wrestling match, but as just a fun, if you could put yourself in the mindset of fans are really excited to see Muda, I think it's entertaining. It's like a fun little piece of Ring of Honor history. One, um, thing, one thing I'd like to add about it. So Punk, historically on commentary, has really like given it to Alice in Danger, right? He's made fun of her looks, called her a sea hag. I think he liked to say he said it again. He's, she looks like the sea hag from Popeye. And everything is all good, clean, misogynistic, fun. Except like what makes it different is that according to the timeline of this show, just a few hours really like an hour before this, CM Punk l- literally tried to murder Alice in Danger. <laughs> he tried to strangle her to death. And now he's like, oh, look at her. She's, she's not good looking. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It just feels a little strange to me. Also, she was just attempted to be murdered. Now she's like, I'm going to distract the referee. <laughs> 
for some reason, you and that voice going, look at her, she's not even good looking, haha, is like maybe my favorite moment uh, in the history of the show. <laughs> oh, God. Like that, there's something about that that is really hitting the spot, and that spot is my funny bone map. But, um, like I said, we both have terrible senses of humor. <laughs> and we're glad for all the hundreds and hundreds of people that also do listening Yay. to us. Thank you. But, um, uh, did you notice there was another weird thing about commentary where it's still pu- Punk and Doug, and then he's starting the match. Um, Punk is trying to call this like this is a big match. I'm going to put aside that my you know my feelings for Daniels and call this straight because it's such a big match. And then Doug and even Gabe gets on the mic and they keep trying to ha- hype up a prophecy Second City Saints six man tag happening on the next show. And Punk is like trying to call the match but he keeps getting dragged into like having to talk about this feud like it was such a weird moment where like punks having to be like come on guys we should call the match (laughs) and not talk about the feud i'm in like why are you talking about like he's at that moment cm punk was a better commentator than two guys than those two right he was he was like i'm just gonna try to be a wrestling fan here you know which is you know it's good that he went out of his way to say it because it would be weird if he was just ignoring the fact that these guys that he's calling are his sworn enemies but but yes yes it is weird and uh what else? Uh, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, um, oh yeah, Arashi. We got to talk. Uh, so Arashi, I agree he uh, wasn't good except for that one dropkick. For those who don't know, Arashi was like a former, former sumo, I think. Kind of a chubby, big, burly guy. And uh, there was something about him, though. Like, he wasn't good, but I also couldn't take my eyes off of him. <laughs> like, he has this magnetism. And there was a moment where, like, there was, I know, like, a lot of Japanese wrestlers, they're classically, like, stoic, and that might have just been what Arashi was. There was a moment that where I swear to God, it looked like Arashi was about to fall asleep, leaning on the <laughs> ropes on the ring apron. And there's, there's a moment where, um, at one point in this match, Daniels runs over and he attacks Arashi, who's standing on the apron since he's not the legal man. He's just like being a dick. And Arashi's response is to hold the ropes and then kneel for a second and not much else until Daniels prompts him like a second time, like, come on, get in the ring. And then Arashi makes a half-hearted effort to get into the ring. And then Punk and Doug start coming up with reasons why Arashi wouldn't run in the ring after Daniels attacked him. And then they seem to settle on just maybe, I think one of them, like maybe Punk says, maybe Arashi just didn't feel like moving. And, like, that's the reason. <laughs> he just doesn't want to move. I mean, that's the that, that's funny thing is that is the reason. And so I had to look this up because I think you'll appreciate this. Given how much you didn't like this, or, I mean, I agree that for the most part, Arashi wasn't good, even if I think he has this weird it factor that he, he has what Striker is missing. But, um, so, Matt, I dug up, and I, while we were talking, um... The I went in the archive website to find the old Death Valley Driver live report because this was I think four or five of the Death Valley Driver guys went to the show live and they wrote uh, an extensive live report. Here, guess guess which people liked Arashi, Matt. I'm going to tell you, it's the Death Valley Driver guys. So yeah. Let me read a couple quotes, and not to make fun of them. You're going to tell you're going to tell me that Phil Schneider enjoyed Arashi. I was a big fan of Death Valley Driver, and I didn't agree with everything. And I it was a big part; it was a great review site. And even if I didn't agree with everything, but here's a couple quotes. Given once you said that, um, oh, Rashi was so bad, I just had to dig up these quotes. They were the early days of the anti-conventional wisdom trend that is very popular these days. So here's Dean Rasmussen. He says the Arashi dropkick was fucking awesome, and I popped like a fucking monkey. If you don't like Arashi, you can suck my dick. So that, <laughs> all right. Uh, hey, man. 
<laughs> you can suck it. So, and then um, I think Pogo P uh, are some, I forget which one, I'm sorry, but I'm just finding this quote here. No, wait, who, let me just try and find it. Um, God, I'm trying to find it. There, um, let me see here. Match is okay spectacle, as everyone is popping hard for what currently passes for Muda stuff, while we're the only ones cheering for Arashi. There, there was one throwback in the crowd trying to get a you fat fuck chant started for Arashi that went over like a fart in church. Um, Arashi getting the hot tag and hitting the fat boy dropkick may have been the most sublime moment of the whole show. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> I just I, like I just, like the most sublime moment in that it was exactly as good as the band Sublime. <laughs> hey, what I got? That's an okay song. But I don't uh, practice Santeria. Got, what I got is uh, is the Arashi's drop kick of Sublime. That's right. It, it's the one thing they have. Santeria. I think that's a pretty good song. I don't know. Yeah, actually, that is. Yeah. Um. Now I gotta play that after we finish the show because it's gonna be stuck in my head. I know it is. So ne- and- never expected to be talking about Sublime on this show, but I blame myself. Sublime and Arashi, they they go together, peanut butter and jelly. Uh, let me just, I'm trying to find if I have any more notes of this match. I've gotten discombobulated. Actually, uh, there's a bit, little bit from The Observer. Working as Muda in full gimmick, the reaction from a crowd clearly filled with Japanese tape watchers was described as similar to a WWE crowd for The Rock or Hulk Hogan. At 41 and with a body destroyed, he didn't do much, but people used to seeing and expecting great main events didn't care as long as they saw his mannerisms. He gave them everything expected, his dragon screw, the green and red mist, one teased moonsault, his power elbow, and the shining wizard. His intro was said to be the biggest reaction in the history of the company, sorry Dave, that's just incredible, and his finish the wizard while it seemed everyone was specifically waiting for it and which he may have never done in the u.s before was described as the biggest pop in the history of the promotion arashi wasn't very good but nobody really seemed to notice i um i noticed um (laughs) but um you know i I, it, it is the dream to have a bunch of people like filling an arena just to see my mannerisms like, yeah. like, man, I can't, I can't wait to see him blink too much and like awkwardly hold his arms at his side. And that, that, those are my mannerisms. So, do you think? I mean, do you? This might be a hard question to answer, but do you think any wrestler these days is big enough where like fans will go to the show just to see a move? Like, I'm sure there are some fans that like they probably when they saw that shining wizard were like. That justifies the price of my ticket. Just like I know there was a lot of fans during the Attitude Era that were like, if I see a Stone Cold Stunner, like. That's makes my night right there. I don't know if there's a single single wrestler today that could just do one move and people are like, "That's why I came to see here." Like, yeah, I think there. I, I think there are wrestlers people would like love to see like them do their shtick. You know, like I think like um, Minoru Suzuki like would like draw a big group of people to like just see him like just be Minoru Suzuki. You know what I mean? But like yeah. to do a move, no. I think there's not enough scarcity now. Like everything is too available. Yeah, like if Kenny Omega just did your local house show and only did was the one-winged angel, you'd be pumped to see Kenny Omega, but you wouldn't be like, that's all I needed to see was just the one-winged angel. Like, No, definitely not. Yeah. So that's going to... And I, the one thing I wanted to mention, I forgotten, and this jogged my memory, was the moonsault. The thing that you mentioned, and it just made me laugh so hard watching it, is there's a moment in this match where Muda goes for the moonsault, and he gets caught... And I think Doug and get, I think Doug is the one going on this, but he's like he only does that in big matches. You know, he 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 doesn't do the moonsault in anything but the biggest matches. And then here's the funny thing: 
he never actually does the moonsault. So, like, in kayfabe, it's like, okay, Muda thought this was a big match because he at least tried the moonsault. But for everybody who's going to be pretty much Ring of Honor's entire fan, ba- entire fi- fan base who knows this match is a work, at the end of the match you're thinking, he never did the moonsault. And they just told us he only does the moonsault in big matches. So it's kind of like they buried themselves, which just kind of made me laugh. Fu- wow. I was like, wait, he never did the moonsault. Not that I expected him to do it, but... Yeah. So, I wonder if he was doing it at all in 2003. I, I'm not sure. It's, I mean, it's wild. that feels like over half my life people have been saying, like, Muda and The Undertaker are the two people that, for over half my life, people have been like, I can't believe he can still walk. And then he keeps wrestling year after year after year. Yep. Like, it's just, don't believe, apparently don't believe anything that doctors say that that's the great message i'm sending you from this podcast Mm, Uh, i feel like with a bunch of measles outbreaks out there this is not a a safe thing to be telling people be be like the great muda don't get immunized (laughs) no i do not endorse this message okay uh after the match muda wants handshakes moth goes to give one but daniel stops him and instead he has the prophecy bow to muda which i thought was a nice little way of Prophecy showing respect, but they're not breaking their like dick credo of never handshake anybody. <laughs> they're uh, not. They're not breaking their dick credo. <laughs> mm, the little dick credo with some nice sharp cheddar. That's good snack. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say. I, I, I thought dick credo sounded like some Italian food, and so it's not. What, that's not. Food. That's not how I was thinking of it. Next, we go backstage, or Chicago, as Gary Michael Capetta might say, for good times, great memories. Colt's guests are special K. He only has one chair for them, which Dixie gets, so I guess that once and for all settles that Dixie is the high man on the special K totem pole. Uh, Colt lets special K know that the carnage crew are looking for them. Becky Bayless turns up for the first time since being given away to Raven in that weird segment a few shows ago, and Colt gives her Dixie's chair so he can ogle her breasts and make boob jokes until the special the carnage crew drop, um, find special K, run them out of the room. DeVito says this is no joke and things have gone personal. He says he has a 13-year-old daughter that didn't come home the other night. She went to a rave and someone slipped her ecstasy. And I just thought, why are you, why are you, like, shouldn't you be mad at yourself for letting your 13-year-old daughter go to a rave? Like, or go out late on a weekend or whatever? And then DeVito says his family may be crappy, but they're still his family. And Loke says now they're going to be, they don't care about pinning Special K, they're going to kill them. I, I'm going to have to say, I think I might be on DeVito's side here. Yes, be mad at yourself, but also be mad at the grown man that kidnapped your 13-year-old daughter and got her, gave her drugs and possibly did other even more horrible things. You know what I mean? Like, well, also, does he even know Special K, like, did it? And if Special K did it, like, how does Special K know what DeVito's daughter even looks like? Like, we're, I, just, I don't know, but this is this is go, this is going to a pretty dark place if they're portraying his daughter as like thirteen. You know what I mean? Like that's that's really young to be like. You know, it does basically just makes Special K into um, like real monsters. Uh, yeah, and it's maybe just an angle too dark for wrestling because like thirteen year old gets drugged by adults at a party is. Yeah. Maybe that's too serious for pro wrestling. I, I also also like very badly timed for Ring of Honor. <laughs> yeah, like between like this, if we were getting the award for most ironic happenings in a year, I think we'd still have to give it to Tradition Continues for being the one show that didn't have man on woman violence and being called Tradition Continues. But the number two runner up 
would be this show having both an award for the classiest promotion of promoter of the year and also this about an angle about like underage being drugged and also even like the part where Gabe got mad about a woman getting attacked like lots of irony on this show that's true that's a good point so we cut backstage to end the show with a super echoey hallway promo. I actually, I actually like the echo here. I don't, I know, I know it's just bad production, but I thought it actually added a cool effect. It, yeah, the effect was kind of cool. Although, part of me thought like it distracted me in the sense of I was thinking, couldn't you find anywhere else in the building that didn't have this echo? <laughs> yeah, yes, of course. <laughs> like, uh, like a lot, like a lot of Ring of Honor um, backstage promos have weird things where it's as if someone like thought should we do take two should we like walk five steps and someone just said no we don't need to do that like, like little things that could be easily fixed yeah but, uh, so anyway moth is still pissed about the whitmer thing and swearing on his father's grave and being made a liar daniels is fed up with that he says i didn't tell moth to sw- i didn't tell you to swear on your father's grave at the end of the day the prophecy is my show these are the choices i made and then the prophecy cue a countdown from an off-camera game so they did yet again for like the hundredth time the we're n- we don't know we're being recorded and now we're going to do the promo proper and we're going to act different than we did like does the prophecy never buy ring of honor dvds do they not know that like they've done this before because then they act like they're all together. Although Moff still sort of acts a little bit like off. He's giving so. a stink eye to BJ. Yeah, yeah. So, so I at least appreciated that. And then uh, the Prophecy started doing this promo. Um, the Daniels cuts a promo. He brings up how Steve Crino's group tried to stop the Prophecy earlier this year and got destroyed by the Prophecy. Daniels reminds us that the Prophecy held all of Ring of Honor's titles earlier this, earlier this year. And he puts over Dan Moff as their backbone. Moff says Daniels has his loyalty. Daniels frames B.J. Whitmer as Xavier's replacement in the prophecy. And B.J. says Daniels also has his loyalty. B.J. says he'll never forget what Punk did to him at Epic Encounter. And says there was no greater sight that he's ever seen than Lucy face down in a puddle of her own blood. So that's pretty creepy. And then Moff doesn't like that Whitmer's talking about that. So in the background of this promo, you can see him start to stare daggers at B.J. as Moff finishes his as Moff or uh, Daniels finishes his promo and Moff goes as far as even to just mouth fuck you to BJ like in the background <laughs> as this is going on and that ends Final Battle 2003 and that ends Ring of Honor 2003 so Matt what did you think about the show? That was it, it was really good um, you know no match of the year um, I liked the first half probably overall more than the second half but you know the second half was entertaining you know it was a shame what happened to Homicide but there were some really good matches on here. I thought the booking was overall pretty good. Um, I, I, I did mostly like the big angle with uh, Prophecy uh, and uh, Whitmer and all that stuff. I really liked the opener. I really liked the fight without honor. I, um, you know, I, I, I thought it was, there was a decent amount of pretty good wrestling on here. And I thought the crowd was super hot. I thought the atmosphere was good. The production was good. Um... Yeah, I thought it was a very good show. You know, not like I don't know if it's anything I'd say you'd go you need to go out of your way to see, but it was certainly an important show for ROH. It was very successful, and they seemed like a hot product. Um, there were definitely been plenty of better shows in two thousand three than this one, but I thought this was probably the best one in a while. The best one probably since the summer. I I like the show too. I I feel like it felt like an event, like like a bigger event. It, it felt like like what it was, which was 
one of the biggest shows they had ever done up to this point. And even the card felt loaded, even if not every match lived up to expectations. I, I thought having like an eight match card instead of a ten match card, and there was no real. It was it was every every match either was a feud or like a quote unquote dream match with with foreign talent. Yeah, there 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 was no filler on here, and there, this that's almost unheard of in ROH. Yeah, so so that made it feel special. I think the the first half of the show, barring the Whitmer Striker match, which even that was not as bad as maybe some people remember, or maybe as bad as it was live. I, I really enjoyed the first half. And the second half had some entertaining stuff, too. And even when it wasn't, like, the greatest matches, it was still... I, I, the novelty of the show was fun to me the whole way through. I agree. And so so I feel like if you can get into that part of it, it it's a really fun show. If, if you just are only into strict, like, I just want to see great matches, I don't care about anything else, there's some very good stuff here. I don't know if there's anything, like, absolutely must-see, but I think it's a fun show. So... That sums up the show, and since we ended 2003, now before we, we can get into what we thought about 2003 as a whole. Now, before we give in awards and look over some other awards, I actually thought we should just talk a little bit about 2003, because one thing I always kept in mind, Matt, was when we were going into starting this year, you talked about how 2003 was like one of your favorite years in Ring of Honor, and I believe you said it was like the year you had rewatched the most of, and I always thought that 2002 was like the year everyone remembers because it was the start of Ring of Honor and so many firsts. And 2004, like 2007, is thought to be the prime. 2003, I, I, th- I feel like, kind of gets lost. Like, people don't talk about it as much. So I'm just wondering, Matt, like, based on rewatching this, did anything change for you? Like, was it better than you remember, worse than you remember? Anything, like, stand out to you? I think some of the strengths, you know, became clearer, and some of the weaknesses definitely became clearer. Like, you know, when I would do rewatches in the past, it wasn't in order. So the, like, the the trends weren't as obvious. Like, it's very clear to me that the spring of 2003 was a real, like, early peak of ROH in terms of, like, hitting on creative cylinders, the shows being good, a lot of characters getting over, things like that. And, like, the, the fall and early winter of 2003 being kind of a a slowing down period where it's clear that they need to make some changes because um, the booking kind of gets a little bit, kind of loses its way a little bit, I guess I can say. Um, but, you know, certain wrestlers stood out, like I said, Xavier um, was a lot better than I remembered, things like that. And, you know, you know, the, you know, when I would do rewatches, it's not like I would rewatch the undercard. So, like, stuff like Hot Stuff Hernandez, you know, suddenly, you know, one show looking like he was the star of the future and the next show looking like he was not, um, <laughs> you know, things like that. But overall, it's still one of my favorite years. I think there's so much fun stuff. And I think it's when ROH really establishes the identity that would carry it through to, you know, into 2004 and, like, kind of, you know, the identity that it still has to this day. I think it really found its, like, its pacing and its, I don't know, it seems corny to say its voice, but you know what I mean. Like, its identity, I guess, in 2003. I feel like we've been on a real journey with 2003 and not just because we've been reviewing it for over a year of our lives and it's taken us that long and like we've spent a lot of time thinking about but i know at the start of the year i feel like the tone of our show sometimes was like boy ring of honor is really consistent now and every show is entertaining and the undercards are better and like every show we were almost like surprised like man i can't wait to watch the next one and then i feel like the last few shows we did kind of fall into that rut where we were like well there's still some good matches and it's not like these shows are terrible but 
there's something missing. I feel like maybe late 2003 is the first rut that Ring of Honor's ever fallen into. Definitely, yeah. It, 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 it's not. It's not even like it's bad. It's just it needs some kind of shot in the arm. There's something missing. Yeah. So the like the rut shows, like the shows like the late latter, like last quarter of 2003, still are way better than almost any show in 2002 in terms of like just like overall quality. It's just that it's just not popping the way it did. And I think another reason why also is, I remember something I told you on one of the shows early in 2003, I, I was saying, you know, some of those early 2002 shows felt like they were so built around low-key Daniels and Danielson that if they none of those guys, if one of those guys missed the show, it would have really hurt the show. And I felt like in early 2003, the, the company had finally gotten um, enough talent and enough enough depth that it didn't really matter if some, who missed a card like they were always putting out entertaining shows but i and i was almost thinking like talking to you back then i was like it's almost like now it doesn't matter how many pieces of talent can't make a show like they're always going to come up with a consistent level of quality but i feel like maybe i brought the karma on me retroactively because i think in the second half of the year you did kind of finally have enough talent leave where you noticed it because in the second half of 2003, you know, Danielson barely wrestled this year for Ring of Honor, and then Low-Key has his injuries and falling out, and Paul London leaves after the first half of the year, and I felt like you can make a case those are the three best wrestlers Ring of Honor had access to at that point, and I felt like Gabe's, you know, in, two, in second half of 2003, Gabe's trying to book all these new guys, like the second wave. He's trying to he's trying to push Whitmer, he's trying to push Stryker, he's trying to push Jimmy Rave, and... I feel like it's the first time where it's just like he doesn't have the answers. Like these aren't the right guys, and you kind of miss the people that have left. It's the first time I missed the people that had left. Yeah, I could see that. Especially, I mean, London, especially. Yeah, like uh, I feel like if you had like London on these shows, probably there's probably not a rut. Maybe, I, I maybe, like, maybe not. You know, London himself might have gotten into a rut, also. You maybe. know, but, but. You know, he never had to go through that period, so he didn't. You know, like it's hard; it's very hard to say. I think I think a lot of it is the booking. The booking lost focus. The face heel dynamics got all messed up. I think a lot can be blamed on that as well. And I I think it's surprising, like that the, the year was as good as it was when so many things didn't go right. When you consider that, like the low key homicide angle that didn't go anywhere, the group versus prophecy angle that ended up like completely crapping the bed because. Crino got arrested. It probably wouldn't have been that good if it, even if he hadn't gotten arrested. Or like the field of honor. Like there's a lot of things that went wrong this year that didn't pay off or have a satisfying ending. But yet, I still think this was like a fun year to watch. I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was a great year overall. Still, I would still say that despite the end, the later part kind of falling off a little bit. So I, I, that that speaks to something about how many good things happened. Where even with I can name all those bad things and be like, well, it's still a good year. Well, they and were t- they it, were just a really classy promotion, you know. And, and, <laughs> and I think you appreciate it more if you watch two thousand two because I, I I don't think we can emphasize enough two thousand three Ring of Honor is just much better undercards and like a much be- like more momentum show to show. And it's just, it feels like er, by late 2002, early 2003, Gabe has kind of figured out his formula of how he wants shows to be. And at that point, it's less about throwing stuff on the wall and more just like filling these blocks in the formula. Like, this is going to be my spot fest match for this show. This is going to be my big angle for the show. And he, he kind of knows the format. 
he, he's gotten comfortable. Agreed. So after that, uh, before we go into our awards, I did one little weird, really regrettable geeky thing, which is I went, Matt, and I looked up the attendance list in the Observer of every Ring of Honor show thus far and got, came up with a couple stats. It's so geeky and dumb, but uh, I did it. And I will mention before I, I read these things out, we know that the Ring of the Wrestling Observer attendance, we've had some anecdotal messages from people that were there. Maybe not, not always the most accurate attendance, but I think at least keeping it just to the Observer at least keeps it kind of consistent. So I thought it'd be interesting just to see some some numbers and some patterns. So just came up with a couple stats. In 2002, Ring of Honor ran 12 shows. They sold 5,250 overall tickets. They averaged 437 fans a show. Their highest attended show was All-Star Extravaganza with 525 fans. And their lowest attended show was Round Robin Challenge with 325 fans. Now, by comparison, 2003, they did 20 shows. So they did eight extra shows. They drew 11,900 fans, so more than double the fans. They averaged 595 fans a show instead of 437. Their highest attended show was Final Battle 2003 with 1,500 fans. Lowest attended was a tie between West Mifflin's Revenge on the Prophecy, Revenge of the Prophecy and Round Robin Challenge 2, which both drew 300, and that's probably why they never went back to West Mifflin after those two shows. And I thought the one interesting other thing was 10 shows in 2003 drew more than 525 fans, which was the record attendance for Ring of Honor in 2002. So, you know, even though they were losing money, apparently hand over fist, like at this point, they were getting more popular. And other than that, I guess we just have the awards and then we have uh, some other awards, I think, from uh, the Observer and the Torch, which I thought would be fun to go over. But for those who don't, haven't been listening. Last year, we did five awards. This year, we're only going to do four awards because one of the awards was Best Surprise. And I, fe- I felt like this year, there wasn't enough surprising things to make a uh, Best Surprise Award. Maybe we'll bring it back in the future. But we will do Worst Thing of the Year, um, Best Match of the Year, Best Show of the Year, and Wrestler of the Year. And the one other change we've made is we last year we did top three for every award. This year we've expanded Wrestler of the Year to top five just because I think it's more interesting and there was enough really good matches to warrant that. And finally, uh, we, me and Matt did not tell each other what we did in the award, so it's going to be new to us. We don't know what each other has voted on, and I'm just going to go to it. Worst Thing of the Year... I'm going to also go over what we did in 2002, just just to, for some, some comparison. So, in 2002, Matt, your number three was poor commentary, your number two was consistent man-on-woman violence, and your number one was the rampant homophobia of the opening of Era of Honor Begins. My number three last year was Donnie B. I just wrote Donnie B, his existence. Uh, two was misogyny aplenty, all the man-on-woman violence. And number one was the opening in-ring in ring segment of Era of Honor Begins, Rampant Homophobia. Matt, what was your third worst thing in 2003, Ring of Honor? Um, my third worst thing was unfocused booking um, in the latter part of the year. Just um, a lack of real feuds. Like, there were certain shows where we were like, we don't even know, like, I don't even know what the feuds are. Like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be looking forward to here. And just, like, very confusing heel-face dynamics, whether it was the Prophecy in the Second City Saints, Samoa Joe and the Briscoes, um, different things like that. Just... A lack of focus in the booking that kind of led to some less than exciting prospects for the future. 
Yeah, I definitely agree there. Um, my third worst was the second and third Ring of Honor riots. Not the first one, because, like, the first one, I don't think it's this amazing thing, but I think it's a cool novelty, like, it was different than anything Ring of Honor had tried, it got people talking, and it is kind of like this interesting little moment, but what some people don't, people remember the first riot, I don't think what people remember, and I certainly kind of have forgotten, that they did a second riot and a third riot on the next two shows, and they were, like the dollar store versions of the original riot they were so much smaller and just the fact that they were repeating them like completely got rid of the mystique of the first one like like some people actually thought the first riot was legitimate and then they decided to repeat it two more times (laughs) it it was as if ring of honor like convinced people that like lightning struck the ring and then they said let's do it on every show and people were like uh that's gonna give it away they're like no 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 this is great (laughs) and uh I wrote this on the episode at the time, but I think Dave Meltzer sums it up best. They did another fake riot. It was a bad idea, although it made for a good visual on the home video the first time a month ago. It was totally lame the second time. It was preposterous to even conceive of doing it a third time, so they did. Not only that, but they did it twice on the same show. Crowd hated it, chanting, fuck this, and no more riots. If a crowd is chanting, don't do something anymore, that's probably pretty bad. So... That was my third worst. Matt, what was your second worst of 2003? Um, my second worst thing of 2003 was the SAT's washing machine. Um, I can't think of another ex- situation where a single move has definitely knocked somebody out on two separate occasions and probably also hurt people a bunch of other times. This was not something that should have been done, and it was just bad news. The fact that they did it... Um they kept doing it after they knocked the guy out. And I realized they did slightly modify the move because they let the guy's hands go free after they first knocked out the first guy. But I still feel like maybe just don't do that move ever again, guys. Exactly. So that's a good choice. Um, my second worst of 2003 was basically what your three was kind in a way. I just wrote the lack of clear faces and heels. Anyone that's listened to recent shows knows we've, uh, just really gone on how unclear the faces and heels are. And I know people can say, oh, it's shades of gray, it's nuance. It doesn't come off like it's intentional nuance. It comes off as they want it to be faces and heels, but they just, like, forget about it a lot or only hold to it when it's convenient. And, I mean, even if you just listen to our review of Final Battle 2003, there are multiple moments of, like, who, all right, who is supposed to be the face in the Prophecy versus um, Second City Saints feud? Is it the people that attack Lucy or the people that threaten to kill Alice in Danger? Like, <laughs> and if people can say, oh, it's a heel versus heel feud, they already did a heel versus heel feud with the Prophecy this year with the group. And a, so, yeah, and a heel versus heel feud is not going to be the top feud in a promotion. Sorry. That's never going to work. And, you know, if they did one heel versus heel field, I could say, okay, that's intentional. They've been doing quite a few of them. So, yeah, just not good. And, Matt, what is your worst thing of 2003? I have a feeling we're both going to have the same thing. Yeah, it's, you know, the general, like just like last year, the general misogyny and violence against women, whether it's the constant attacking of Alice in Danger and trying to murder her, the calling Becky Bayless a slut, the calling Becky Bayless a slut so people can forcibly kiss her and saying that she should that she should like it, the pile-driving women through tables to incredible cheers, the pile-driving of Ariel through a table, um... Just, you know, even though like you're supposed to be heels because it's, it excites the crowd so much, the, you know, you're trying to get 
Alexis Lurie over as a serious wrestler, but then also talking about her, quote, cute little tummy multiple <laughs> times during a match. Oh. It was just so much gross shit over and over and over again to the point where there's literally only one show that didn't have man-on-woman violence. Um, yeah, it's uh, this was just overwhelming and constant, and it just was like a barrage and assault of on everything decent. It was just too much. Man, it was just too much. And and I agree. My number one is also the man-on-woman violence streak. Uh, when we started doing the show, we knew there'd be man-on-woman violence, but we never talked about going in. We just talked about, hey, let's do this fun podcast. I, I did not know we, it was going to be enough that we would be able to start a streak. I did not know that that streak would continue into 2003. And I certainly didn't know that at the end of 2003, I'd be able to tell you that 31 of the first 32 Ring of Honor shows had man-on-woman violence. And it's just... We've talked so much about it. it's exhausting. It's just, it's great that we've come that that wouldn't be acceptable nowadays, and it's, it's just, it's crazy that we've had to come so far in just the last fifteen years. It's crazy that this was acceptable in two thousand three, and it's crazy that they pressed that button so often. Even if you think we're doing this to shock you, man, because it's supposed to be offensive. It's not offensive. It's less offensive and more sad. It goes back to the repeating the riots thing. When you do it every show, it, it, it stops being shocking. It just starts being weird. And, and also, it also clearly wasn't supposed to be offensive. It was supposed to be crowd pleasing. So, yeah. so that's not even a valid argument either. And it's funny because nowadays the big debate is like, is intergender wrestling okay? But at least like, you know, that's like a whole separate debate because there's this idea of consent. Uh, you know, to the violence in that situation versus it being done to somebody. And it's still like, I don't know what the answer is, but it's a very different situation than what we see here. Yeah. So now that we've gotten rid of the negative, we have nothing but positive categories for the rest of the way. So show of the year. Last year, I had as, as my third favorite show of the year, Scramble Madness. Number two was Road to the Title. And number one was Honor Invades Boston. Matt, for, 2003, for 2002, you had Scramble Madness as number three as well. Honor Invades Boston, number two. And All-Star Extravaganza was your show of the year. So my third favorite show for 2003 was the show we just watched, Final Battle 2003. I thought, I mean, I don't really have to say anything. We literally just said why we liked it. So... Final Battle 2003 is my third favorite show of 2003. Matt, what's your favorite, third favorite show of 2003? That's a good choice. My number three is the one-year anniversary show. Um, I thought it just had like a lot of variety of good stuff. It had that first riot, which was you know not bad, kind of cool at the time. Had a very good Danielson versus Samoa Joe match. It had a good Briscoes versus Briscoe match. Had that great multi-match segment with Paul London where he wins this really cool three-way between against AJ and Loki and then has this great emotional near title win against Xavier. Um, terrible last match, but certainly memorable in that endless scramble. But it was one of the first ROH shows that felt like a big epic show. The crowd was hot for it. There was just a huge variety of good stuff. Really, really loved that show. Um, my second favorite show of 2003 was Death Before Dishonor. I felt like it, um, it, 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 going to what you said about the first anniversary show, it felt like an event. And look at my top three. I think all the shows I picked this year were shows that just felt like big events this year because the quality was fairly consistent. So I just wanted shows. The shows that jumped down at me were the ones that were felt bigger. And, you know, even though it didn't 
I mean, I guess the four-way was really great. That was one great match, but it also had things that just felt memorable and special, like uh, Punk Raven in the dog collar match I thought was a good match and felt like a really cool moment in that feud. Paul London was like the first ever big goodbye in Ring of Honor history, and his match with Samoa Joe wasn't the greatest match those two could have had, but it was solid. Um even even the Jeff Hardy thing was at least memorable. So I thought just a memorable, enjoyable show, Death Before Dishonor. Um, my number two show was Do or Die. Um, it featured like some of the first like really like show long booking from Gabe as far as like um, starts with this big angle with homicide and low key and like they're like in hom- and low key doesn't like Julius Smokes, which culminates at the end of this really amazing main event between Samoa Joe and Homicide for the title where Smokes and Loki are, are fighting, and that allows Joe to win the match with the Muscle Buster. Also has good match between Matt Stryker and Tom Carter. It's like kind of a coming-out party for CM Punk, where he does like multiple good promos, highlights a, a big, wide variety of talent. I just thought it felt like a really great-paced, like well-booked, super-hot crowd show with a great main event. I love Do or Die. I highly recommend it. And my favorite show of 2003 was Matt's third favorite. It's the one-year anniversary show. I felt like Final Battle 2003 and Death Before Dishonor, my three and two, they're like shows that feel major, but they don't have that one like super great match. They have some very good matches, but not that great match. And then there are other shows that I felt had that great match, but didn't feel like super major like special shows. I feel like one-year anniversary show was the one show this year where you didn't have to pick. It felt like a super special show, and it had some really good matches, but I also think the the two Paul London matches, the low-key AJ London three-way and the Xavier London match were both great, so I felt like you kind of got everything. You got great matches and good matches and cool, weird moments like the riot, and you had a 30-minute scramble where Gabe and Doug spent half of it talking about anything but the scramble and basically like reading books and I, it's my favorite show of the year. And my favorite show of the year is your second favorite show of the year, um, Death Before Dishonor. Still one of my all-time favorite ROH shows. Like you said, like it wasn't the best wrestling show they ever did, but there, you know, there was a lot of good wrestling. But they had they packed in the great moments from Loki's big return to the. Um, to the return of Xavier. Well, I'm joking, kind of, but it, it turned out to be a, uh, an important thing. Um, but the, you know, the great four-way, Jeff Hardy. You know, you know, it didn't go well, but man, was it memorable. Um, the Punk and Raven dog collar match with the crazy surprise ending with Tommy Dreamer coming out to that amazing reaction to the farewell of Paul London. Like you said, it basically just took, like you said, the the one-year anniversary felt like a big show. This just took that to another level with more big moments, um, better production. It just felt epic. And like we had mentioned at the time in the review, it was like that that example of that show that should have been way too long. But since it was novel to have a show that long at the time, it didn't feel too long. It just felt like they were just giving you more. And that's always a great feeling. And I thought just everything clicked that night. It was kind of the culmination of a really hot run for ROH in terms of they just put out really good show after really good show. And this was like the WrestleMania, like the end of that season. And then things kind of were downhill a little bit after that, to be honest. Yeah, I think that really was kind of like the beginning. Not of the end. That sounds too bad for 2003, but yeah, that was kind of a peak in some ways. It definitely was. Right. So match of the year, 2002. 
I said Mark Briscoe versus Jay Briscoe from Honor Invades Boston was my third favorite. My second favorite match of the year was American Dragon versus Low Key from the Round Robin Challenge. And my favorite match of the year was American Dragon versus Low Key versus Christopher Daniels, the three-way from The Era of Honor Begins. Matt, in 2002, he thought his third, well, he knew his third <laughs> favorite was. He wasn't guessing at what his third favorite was. Matt knew for a fact that Matt Feuerstein's third favorite was Christopher Daniels versus Low Key versus Doug Williams versus Spanky at Crowning a Champion. His second favorite match of 2002 was AJ Styles versus American Dragon from All-Star Extravaganza. And his favorite match of 2002 was American Dragon versus Low Key from Round Robin Challenge. Matt, what was your third favorite match? Or, no, wait, it's top five this year. Again, That's right. we're getting bonus. Matt, what was your top, your number five match? Of 2003. Oh, this was really hard, just so you know. I don't know if it was hard for you, but coming up with five even was really hard. Um, so I'll just really quickly go through a bunch of matches that I considered for my fifth spot. Go ahead. Uh, well, Samoa Joe versus Christopher Daniels from Glory by Honor 2. Um, I was wrestling with that one, pun intended. Um, also, Paul London versus Xavier from the first year anniversary. I was considering... Um, even Christopher Daniels versus Doug Williams from Night of Champions, I was I had on my list. I ended up for number five picking Paul London versus AJ Styles versus Loki from the one year anniversary uh, as my fifth choice. I just thought that was so innovative. I remember we talked about it at the time, like if if somebody had done the, that match move for move in two thousand and eighteen, you know, it wouldn't seem antiquated in any way. And when you have a match that's that ahead of its time and holds up that well, you got to give it some props. I did think that it, there were kind of some slow spots near the end, but man, what they did was so impressive. I I had to include it on the list. Matt, sometimes we uh we occasionally have little like disagreements of opinion, obviously on most shows, which helps make it interesting. But we also agree a lot. I feel like this is one of our this is like probably the most newlywed game moment we've ever had because <laughs> you talked about. Paul London versus Xavier. My match that just missed the cut was Paul London versus Xavier. And my number five match is AJ Styles versus Loki versus Paul London yeah. from the one year anniversary show. So we have the same number five and wow. the same, like almost just made it. And everything you said, it's, um, I-, I believe I said at the time, if you put this match in PWG today, it wouldn't seem old fashioned. Like the, and, there's a lot of matches that are timeless in wrestling because they're story based and like stories are timeless. But this is a match that's just based around crazy spots, and the spots are so cool and the ex- execution is so cool that it it's timeless and that like or not timeless. It, it holds up 15 years later, and that's crazy because that's the one thing that ages the quickest is is like spots because the bar is always being raised with spots. But this match is just. It's it's a spot fest that, like you said, way ahead of its time. So, Matt, what's your number four? Let's see if we can go two for two on lining this up. All right, it's going to be tough. My number four is Paul London versus AJ Styles from Night of the Grudges. Um, I really loved how different it was. I loved the work, the arm work. I loved like the you know they kind of had to improvise a little bit on the finish because of AJ being the NWA champion and they came up with this interesting um, draw finish which pissed people off but like still worked in its own weird way and Paul London you know was doing his like kind of he was getting his character down almost like healing a little bit they were doing a lot of like stalling and like mind games it was different from the other great matches of the year um, 
you know, and it, it was like maybe like the culmination of Paul London's great run. But it was really interesting and really good and highly recommended. Matt, I swear on my life, <laughs> my number four is AJ Styles versus Paul London. Wow. Night of the Grudges. So, um, yeah, the, everything you said again. Uh, this is a great match. And what I love about this match is it, it's the great athleticism you'd ex- and cool spots you'd expect from these two. But it really does tell a great story. Like, it's really good body part work. It plays directly into the finish where AJ can't hold a bridge because all of on a suplex because of all the work Paul London's done on his body and it causes the double pin and the draw. And even though that wasn't their original plan, I feel like it's actually a, one of the most satisfying like double draws I've seen in quite some time in wrestling. And just, I thought Paul London's work on AJ Styles' like legs and what were, was just really inventive. Like he wasn't just doing submissions. He was like, he did the shooting star press onto the leg. He would do all sorts of like different kinds of new moves specifically targeting the leg. Just great match. I really enjoyed it. Matt, can we go three for three? I bet you we're going to disagree because I bet you, you have what I have as three higher, but what is your third favorite match of 2003? Yeah, I have a feeling we're going to have the same top three and I have a feeling that the order is going to be quite different. Um, but we'll see if I'm wrong. My number three is Samoa Joe versus Homicide from Do or Die. Um, I thought this match was awesome. I thought that the they were just throwing bombs. I thought the crowd was going nuts. I said at the time this was like the first Samoa Joe title match in terms of like he has a type of match. And this was the first version of it. And it's one of the best versions of it. And the storyline was great with Homicide. You know, he's fighting for everything he's got for his son. And Loki, you know, slaps him into shape. And it's the debut of the Muscle Buster because Joe just can't do anything to put this guy away except for that. And, man, it's awesome. And I love it. And it is my third favorite match of 2003. The streak is broken because my third favorite match of 2003 is Brian Danielson versus Paul London, two out of three falls from the Epic Encounter. Um, going into rewatching all the shows this year, this was my favorite Ring of Honor match of 2003. I thought it would be again, and I feel like maybe if I rewatched, if we did, our, if in in a crazy alternate dimension where we redo all the shows, maybe it would be again because I feel like even though I still love this match, my expectations from my memory were so high that it almost made it a slightly disappointing because I remember at one point this match was one of my favorite matches in all of wrestling, but it's a great match. It's just Paul London is an amazing, is one of the greatest baby faces ever of this generation. Brian Danielson is just one of the greatest wrestlers period. He's great at just being a, a jerk, but it's also just, there's, there's nothing, I guess the only thing why I, I have it at three is, it's just a great wrestling match. And saying just a great wrestling match it sounds kind of stupid, but there's no, they didn't really have a feud, even though they had a couple matches. There's no extra emotion. There's no, it's just a great straight up wrestling match. But as far as those go, like one of the absolute best of the year. Um, Matt, what's your number two? My number two is Paul London versus Brian Danielson, two out of three falls from the Epic Encounter. 
Um, yeah, I agree with everything you said about it. Um, I liked that it was just this epic struggle where everything they did just seemed like they were working for it and working for it. You know, I loved London's, you know, just his passion and how much the crowd, like the debut of the dueling chant, like, come on, that's, that's yeah. such a big deal. Um, it was awesome. I just, there was just this one element of emotion that I like to have in a match that was better in another match, <laughs> I guess is how I would say it. Um, so that is why it's not my number one. Yeah, and I have a feeling we're going to have the same number one because my number two is your number three. Mm-hmm. We just switched on our three and two. We, Matt, we were so close, I think, to having the exact same top. I know. Amazing. A Homicide versus Samoa Joe from Do or Die is my number two. If there's one thing that I was surprised at how much more I liked it on rewatch, it's not like I ever thought this was a bad match, but I couldn't believe how much I loved this match on rewatch. I remember it got to the degree that when we were doing the Do or Die episode of this podcast, you were like, boy, you really like that. I haven't heard you get this excited, Trevor. That's right. And it it is a great match. It's got, it's the first Joe match, like Matt said, to feel like that epic Joe-style match. It almost feels like a bit WWE-ish because it's got so much drama and emotion to it with low-key at ringside. And even the squabbling with the low-key and uh, Julius Smokes at ringside to um, distracting homicide I felt like actually added to the match and the work is so good it's just so hard hitting and so exciting the debut of the muscle buster but more than all that if someone had to t- if someone asked me what's your favorite just moment of 2003 ring of honor it's when low-key slaps homicide in during the middle of this match and lo- homicide basically hulks up it has this huge near fall where everyone in that building thought Homicide was about to win the title. It's just this amazing, amazing, like, 30-second moment. Just, it feels like Hulkamania for jaded indie wrestling. <laughs> a real Hulk up that's like, it got me excited again. Even though I knew he wasn't going to win, I just, I loved it. And, Matt, I think you should tell everybody what our favorite match of 2003 is. Because if it's not our, if we if we don't have the same first match... This podcast is over at this point. You don't have this in your top five. So, well, it is. What's our favorite match? As I'm sure it is with you, Slick Wagner Brown versus Oman Tortu. No, um, yeah, yes, um, <laughs> it is Homicide versus Steve Carino. Strong style match, as Homicide said, from bitter friends, stiffer enemies. Yes. Um, in Connecticut, the first show in Connecticut, and man, what a way to debut it. Um, just the the most intense brawl with the most crowd heat of the year by far to the um you know this the visceral hatred between these two guys to the point where you know and I I hate to bring this up as like a positive for the match but it does show you how intense it was homicide literally slapped Steve Carino's ear so hard that he stopped being able to hear in that ear um not a good thing but it does illustrate something but between like you know just a shocking amount of violence but in a way that just seems so believable because of the way the the wrestlers sold it, where Homicide was just carving Steve Carino's arm with barbed wire. But also just the moves that they did and the submissions and the fact that at the end, Homicide won because Chuck Legrand threw in the towel. And the way they played the storyline was that Carino wasn't even mad about it. He appreciated how much his friend cared for him. Like, just that degree of emotion... And just everything just felt so natural. Everything felt so intense. Um, the best Steve Carino match I've ever seen. Um, maybe even the best homicide match I've ever seen, honestly. I, I'd, I'd have to think about it more. But it was incredible. 
it was just, I mean, go back and listen to the show that we did. We talked about it for a long time. Um, people have praised that segment. Yeah. You know, like we were elevated just by talking about that match. <laughs> so I think I that match, we owe that match this award just for that. Um, but yeah, amazing. Incredible match. Uh, w- uh, one of the best brawls you'll ever see. Yeah, just a fantastic match. And like looking at my list, Brian Danielson versus Paul Lund in a straight wrestling match is a great match. I've seen other great straight up Paul Brian Danielson matches. Homicide versus Samoa Joe, as we've said, is like one of the first Samoa Joe Ring of Honor matches that feels like one of his epics. We've seen other great Samoa Joe epics. Even like the three way that we had at number five, we've seen other great like spot fests. There's nothing really when I look over Ring of Honor history that quite feels like Homicide versus Steve Carino. It is so intense, but at such a like measured pace, but it's just, it feels gritty and real in a way. It's, as I talked about, I think, on the review of that show, it's a match full of weapons and, and you know, crazy things, but it doesn't feel like those things are the guest stars. They support the match. They're not the whole reason for the match. And... It's this just this magic moment where they didn't have anything like they didn't have this kind of chemistry in their first match, and while I think they always had this cool chemistry after this match, they never. It was just like one magic night. They never got to this place ever again. No, and, it was yeah, it was the, the the stars aligned, as they say. Yeah, it's just it, there's there's nothing in my opinion quite like. I mean, there's been other great brawls, but there's nothing quite like it in Ring of Honor's history. This kind of match, it's just a special match, a special night, and. If you haven't seen it, you should go out of your way on eBay, on the dark internet, find a copy of the show, Bitter Friends, Different Enemies. It is a fantastic match. So, And it is the first time in two years we can say it's not Trevor's favorite match of the year or Matt's favorite match of the year. It is through the years official, cannot be argued with, 2003 match of the year. Absolutely. Wrestler of the Year is our final award. Last year, Matt... Your third favorite wrestler of the year was AJ Styles. Your second favorite was Low Key. Your first favorite was American Dragon, Brian Danielson. Last year, my third favorite was American Dragon. My second favorite was Christopher Daniels. And my number one was Low Key. So this year, my third favorite wrestler of 2003 was Paul London. And Paul London at number three was my hardest choice of any award because last year I had Paul London as my honorable mention for, um, no pun intended, for <laughs> 2002, because I felt like his second half of the year was amazing, but because he didn't really have a first half of the year, I couldn't put him in. And I was looking at this year and going, it's the same thing in reverse. He had an amazing first half of the year, and then he literally is not part of Ring of Honor for the second half of the year. And I thought to myself, I know I love Paul London, and, and I, I... I feel like if I've said this before, if you took the second half of 2002 and the first half of 2003 and put that as one year, that's the best year anyone has had in Ring of Honor so far, in my opinion. And I felt like if I just put him at three just because I want that, that's not really being true to like the anime. That's what my heart wanted, Matt. It's not what my brain wanted. But then I thought, even though Paul only worked the first half of the year, I looked at my match of the year for this year. I had Paul London at Xavier at six, which was my first one left off the top five. Then Paul London was in the three-way at five. Paul London was in the AJ match at four. And Paul London was in the Brian Danielson match at three. So Paul London, even though he only wrestled half the year, was in four of my six favorite matches of the year. Like, 
at that point, I, I, I can't deny him. So I'll, I'll just say, Paul London, it is a, I've said this a few times, it is a goddamn travesty that we that Paul London's career and his love for wrestling got snuffed out by WWE because I think Paul London was a generational talent. I think if he had stayed this good in Ring of Honor for a few years, we'd be talking about him like we talk about AJ Styles or Brian Danielson or anyone else. He was that good at being a babyface, at being an underdog, at being a crazy fine wrestler that also had the fundamentals. He was even showing his charisma in 2003. And if he had had a second half of 2003 as good as his first half, he would have been not just my wrestler of 2003, but, like, not even close. So, half a year, but Paul Lennon's my third favorite of 2003. Matt, what's your third favorite? My third favorite wrestler of 2003 is Samoa Joe. Um... You know, he, he took the title to a new level already, um, created this great character, um, just this no-nonsense, um, you know, just champion who, you know, epitomized confidence, and, you know, he was like, I am the voice of this promotion, and he really carried that mantle, um, you know, and at the beginning of the year, I don't think anyone would have expected that. Um, I don't know how early Gabe decided that he was going to go with Joe, but, you know, I think it was a surprise to most people that he ended up being what he ended up being, even by this point in the t- in time, 2003. He already was a very definitive champion. Um, and as far as matches, well, he had started the year with two really good matches against uh, Brian Danielson. He, uh, you know, had a couple of okay matches at the beginning of the, you know, his title reign. But then he had that amazing match against Homicide. He had this really good sprint against Dan Moff. He had a disappointing but still good match against Paul London. Um, another, you know, pretty good match against BJ Whitmer. A good match against CM Punk that was non-title. Um, he had a great, great match against uh, Christopher Daniels. Um, really great match. Um, a shockingly good match against Jay Briscoe. Another very good match against Homicide. Um, Great tag team match with AJ against the Briscoes. In my opinion, a great match against AJ. So, I mean, he was just very consistent all year. And considering the way he elevated himself and the title, I think that he definitely deserves a spot on the top three. And my number two wrestler for 2003 is Samoa Joe. And just what you said, I think the key word in everything you said is consistency. Like, 2003 was a... In a, a year that was Ring of Honor was pretty consistently entertaining, but it was they were also in flux in a lot of ways. A lot of angles that kind of didn't go the right way. Um, you know, a lot of movement in the roster. And Samoa Joe to me is like the consistent thread throughout the show, the year, where you could just always count on him to put in a great effort. Usually have a very good match. Um, he was always cutting like good, solid, short little promos, and just it felt like. In the second half of 2003, Gabe's trying different angles, and he's trying pushing new guys, and he's like trying to find like new things to kind of give new spark to the company and new directions to go in. And like the one thing that on all the shows that kind of doesn't get touched is just Joe, because it's just like you just take for granted, like oh, that's one thing we don't have to worry about. Like Joe in the title is it's in a good place. We can always count on him. We don't have to worry about him. And what like what a gift if I was like Gabe. This is probably, I'm sure it probably was, the year I fell in love with Samoa Joe because it's like, oh, thank God. Like, he's just always shows up on every show, always consistent, so good. Like, it's the one thing you don't have to worry about is Samoa Joe. It's a great point. Um, 
My number two is Paul London. Um, despite him only being there for half the year, um, what a half the year, you know? Like I, though, like those matches were that he's had were not just good. They were like, like so many of them were great. Um, you know, so many, almost all of his matches are in my top ten for match of the year. Um, whether it's the match against Xavier, whether it's the first four way at uh, the Revenge on the Prophecy, the three way at Anniversary, the match against Danielson, right? That's like my second best match of the year. The match against Styles, which is the fourth best match of the year, in my opinion. The um, And your opinion, actually. Um, <laughs> a match against Red, like that little short match at the Round Robin Challenge, where he gets to be a heel, and he does the arm drag into the kick. Like, man, like that was good. The match against Daniels at the Round Robin Challenge. Like, just every match he was in was a match of the year candidate, um, in some either big or small way, almost. And he got he had the crowd emotionally invested in him like nobody else. He was just the defining guy on the Indies in the first half of 2003. And with the with that the rest no one could take that away from him in the second half of the year in my opinion. He was just that good. I love that. Like I debated in my head so much. Like, oh, am I making a reach with London at three, even though he's in a half a year? And then like you have him higher than me, so yeah. I shouldn't have worried at all. But yeah, I mean. In a way, it's almost to his benefit that like he only did half a year because it almost makes what he did more impressive. Exactly. Like, he had probably more great matches this year than guys that worked twice as many shows. Way more. Yeah. He had I mean, more great matches than Samoa Joe, and I love Samoa Joe, and I thought he had a great year, but London just had that had those higher peaks. I really do think this if you put the second half of 2002 to the first half of 2003, Paul London, as one year, that is probably one of the greatest years a wrestler has had in a promotion match quality wise, at least on the indies, probably of the last 20 years. Like just, it is his, his ratio of great to not great is off. Like not even like good to, to not great. I mean, good to not good. I'm talking about great, like top end matches. Yeah. It's untouchable. It's, yeah. Fantastic. And my wrestler of the year, we might be simpatical on this. We'll see. Uh, that's homicide mm-hmm. is the 2003 wrestler. So yeah, our wrestler of the year is homicide another guy who just very consistent and this was the year i feel like in a year where ring of honor one of our complaints is how bad the face heel stuff is he was the one guy that pulled off being like the anti-hero tweener naturally where you're like it, it, it feels good that homicides this way you shouldn't he's he's too lovable to be hated and he's too like edgy and like kind of violent to be loved he's and he just had going to like the paul london thing paul london had four of my favorite six of my six favorite matches of the year um homicide had my two favorite matches of the year so from match quality he also in that four-way at death before his arm that was great i mean i'm sure you'll reel off there's other matches he was great in but i also feel like homicide versus career was my favorite feud of the year well that or raven or punk it's, it's close i i just feel like Homicide. I I remember a shoot interview Christopher Daniels did, or no, Samoa Joe did, where he said Homicide tries to give you something special every time out. No matter what I thought of a Homicide match this year, there is only one match he had this year where I thought he was not giving a hundred and ten percent, and that was versus Chris Saban at Wrath of the Racket, and that was on a show where he had to work double duty, so he might have been holding back. Every other show, I always felt like Homicide was was like. 
not holding a thing back. He was just working his ass off, taking crazy bumps, trying his hardest. Even on matches where, like, the chemistry, you know, like, the, he had a match with Daniels this year where the chemistry didn't line up. I never thought Homicide wasn't trying his absolute hardest. And also just the kinds of, like, the most versatile wrestler. He, you know, he can work the mat. He can do flying with the crazy taupe con Hilo. He could do like a weapon brawl. He can do like a hardcore match with Dusty Rhodes and a crazy like 10-man tag. He could do like your standard big work rate, work rate, epic, whatever. It's just most versatile wrestler the company had. Yeah, I um the, the the versatility, the variety, like that's what I definitely want to emphasize with him. Like like you said, so he could either have the epic world title match, like the one against Samoa Joe that we both love so much, the insane like intense brutal like feud blood feud brawl with Carino that was our match of the year, or an even darker, more twisted version of that in the in the uh, barbed wire match that we just reviewed on the last show. Uh, he could have these big like. Um, indie style, like bomb throwing kickout fests, like the one he had with BJ Whitmer at Main Event Spectacles. That was better than it had any right to be. He could do these really like fun, nonstop action four ways where he's clearly the star of those matches, like the one at Death Before Dishonor and the one at Revenge on the Prophecy. He could have these really insane, just like big spot, like plunder spot fests like the one he had with Trent Acid at WrestleRave and then another just insane like mess of a psychotic entertainment entertaining match with that he had with Trent Acid at Beating the Odds um, just like one great th- you know then just another version of a really good match against Samoa Joe at um, Empire State Showdown which we both thought was uh, a very underrated match um, he had so many really good matches um, and when he wasn't there the rare times he wasn't there you missed him, um, but that didn't happen very often because he was always there, and he was having he was having these really good matches, and yeah, I mean, just what a year he had. Um, you know, the, the way they put him over back then, it was not hyperbole. Like he was, he was something special. It's amazing to me that him and Joe were not signed by TNA sooner. Like I don't know what they were waiting for with those two, or maybe they just didn't want to go. I don't know. It's sad that Homicide. He eventually did get, you know, everyone knows he got eventually a TNA job, but it's sad that he never he never got the career his talent deserved. If he, if he was four inches taller, I think he would have had a completely different life. That's, I mean, that's true of a lot of wrestlers, but yeah, he's one of them. And I, like, he's just so good. And the one thing that really bugged me, you know, I go back and I do a lot of research for these shows because I'm a big old dork, and... Uh, one thing that really bugs me reading a lot of like 2002, 2003 articles is the number of people that weren't watching indie wrestling or who watched just a tiny bit who was like, oh, is that Homicide, just a new Jack ripoff? Like someone, I think one, like Jason Powell from The Torch even brought that up in a, in a thing with Gabe. And Gabe had to be like, no, like he's, he's not New Jack. and Nothing I, even close to being like New Jack. Like, yeah. You could not compare a more one-dimensional wrestler to a more multi-dimensional wrestler. Like, it's polar opposites of this. And I'm not saying bad things about New Jack. Don't hurt me, New Jack. I'm <laughs> saying New Jack is good at one kind of thing. Homicide was good at, like, ten kinds of things. They are, like, the opposite ends of a spectrum. And it's wild that because they both had dark skin and were, like, Tupac bandanas, that somehow people for a couple of years were like, oh, clearly this guy's ripping off New Jack. 
Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, just watch one homicide match and one New Jack match, and you will know that they're not at all alike. Yeah. Also interesting is a lot of people consider 2003 like the year of CM Punk. We both did not have CM Punk in our top three. No, but he did have. He was, probably, he was definitely he was definitely the promo of the year if we were, if we were going to do that by far. He had either the best or second best feud of the year. So not, no one's dissing CM Punk, but you know based, based on the awards that we give, yeah. His promos were good. I feel like he was a guy this year match wise. He hit a lot of doubles. He didn't really hit a lot of home runs. No. But, but, I'm sure. I'm sure he would admit that his home runs were in IWA Mid South. If you want to see a great 2003 CM Punk match, watch the two out of three falls 90 minute match he had against Chris Hero. That match is shockingly good. Um, you know, anybody doing a 90 minute match is to to be able to be entertaining is amazing. But those two did a really good job. Or even like the 40 something minute I think like TLC match he did with uh, Chris Hero in I just that, watch any Chris yeah. Hero CM Punk yeah. match in IWA in itself. That one was O two. That one was O two. But yes, the, the point stands. Oh, yeah. But I mean, th- th- those are examples of maybe he was a guy that, especially because he was working so often with Raven, he had more to give in the ring that maybe he could show in Ring of Honor. Although he did not have a bad year. It, from a wrestling standpoint in Ring of Honor either this year. No, not he, at all. He, he, he just missed my three, just my top three. Yeah, let, let's let's see what 2004 has in store for CM Punk. <laughs> he, he, might do a, he might have a couple good matches this year. But <laughs> So now to wind down, I thought we'd do what we did last year, a little fun thing where we just go back and revisit how Ring of Honor did in the Observer end of your awards. And I also found this year some PW Torch awards. And I thought it's just a little goofy way to wind down. And now that we've given all our thoughts... To see how other people thought, because remember, just like I said last year, unlike the um, the the pro wrestling, I mean, the, how do I keep calling it the pro wrestling observer? Unlike the wrestling observer Hall of Fame, which is voted on just by a panel of people that Dave chooses, any subscriber to the wrestling observer um, could vote on the year-end award. So you're getting a real picture of what like the the smart nerdy fans, but all of them felt about wrestlers and what about ring of honor. So I'm just going over the awards that ring of honor was in, um, most outstanding wrestler, which is not the Lou Fez award, which is supposed to factor in drawing and work. Most outstanding was just work. Um, Kurt Angle won in 2003, AJ Styles finished eighth, Paul London finished 13th, Brian Danielson finished 14th. So that's the, uh, ring of honor thing there. Feud of the year. Brock Lesnar versus Kurt Angle won. Raven versus CM Punk finished second. So pretty big for and just uh, a few that was only in Ring of Honor and MLW. Uh, tag Team of the Year, Naomichi Marafuji and Kento won. Uh, the Briscoes finished 13th. So Briscoes, I think, first time that they get on the, that award. It won't be the last. Most Improved Wrestler, Brock Lesnar won. AJ Styles finished 8th. Homicide finished 14th, CM Punk 15th, Paul London 20th. So, a bunch of Ring of Honor guys there. Most Improved has always seemed weird to me because a lot of times I felt like Most Improved turned out to be, for a lot of people, just the person I noticed this year. <laughs> Not always the Most Improved. Uh, best on interviews, Chris Jericho won. CM Punk finished 5th, Raven finished 8th. CM Punk finished ahead of Ric Flair and Kurt Angle, Steve Austin, and Vince McMahon. That's a Pretty good list of people to finish in front of. Damn. Best technical wrestler, Chris Benoit won. Brian Danielson finished fourth. Doug Williams finished seventh. I can't imagine 
like Doug Williams was another guy kind of get lost in the shuffle, didn't get a lot of opportunities to wrestle state stateside. So, um, brawler of the year, Brock Lesnar won. Raven finished second. Homicide gets sixth. Samoa Joe gets seventh. Steve Crano finished eleventh for that. Best flying wrestler, Rey Mysterio won. AJ Styles second. Teddy Hart finished third. Probably like the highest placement placement for Teddy Hart in his career on any award. Uh, Amazing Red finished seventh. Paul London finished eighth. Most underrated. Ultimo Dragon won. Our old friend Spanky, gone but not forgotten, finished second. Christopher Daniels finished fourth. Paul London finished ninth. Doug Williams finished 16th. Finally, all right, next up we get promotion of the year. Pride Fighting Championships won. It's MMA. Pro Wrestling Noah was second, so that makes it the top-ranked pro wrestling promotion of the year. Ring of Honor finished third. So, very high ranking for Ring of Honor. Funny thing, shows you how times have changed. New Japan finished 11th. I... Um, yeah, it was not it was not a great year for New Japan. I can remember that. <laughs> yeah, this was like the downturn. But I, I have a feeling some kids today who are like, "Oh, Dave, like the, all those observer marks, they just all all they care about is New Japan." Like, go in a time machine and see how things can change because yeah. they finished eleventh. Um, match of the year: Mitsuhara Masawa versus Kenta Kabashi in Tokyo on uh, March first. Brian Danielson versus Paul London finished seventh, or no, fifth actually, fifth. Uh, Homicide versus Steve Crino from Bitter Friends Differ Enemies finished 14th. So a couple of our favorites did chart. Uh, Rookie of the Year. Now this is one I told Matt, I spoiled Matt on this months ago because Matt told me, I think on one of the shows, he was like, boy, Chris Sabin, you know, he, I remember him being really good in TNA, but there's just something about Ring of Honor he's not good in. Chris Sabin won Rookie of the Year in 2003. You know who finished second? Zach Gowan. You know who finished third? Shinsuke Nakamura. <laughs> Chris Saban and Zach Gowan. Alex Shelley finished sixth. We haven't gotten to see much of them yet, but we'll start seeing a lot more next year. Worst television announcer, Jonathan Coachman won. Chris Lovey finished 12th. So congratulations to Chris Lovey. <laughs> uh, you are not even the 10th worst. Good job. <laughs> um, best major show, Ring of Honor's one-year anniversary show, finished eighth. Uh, let me just see here. Death Before Dishonor finished 12th, and The Epic Encounter finished 15th. Reader's Favorite Wrestler, always a weird generic award. Paul Lennon, 6. AJ Styles, 10. Kurt Angle won that. Booker of the Year, Jim Cornette for his work in OVW. Gabe Sapolsky finished 2nd, above Masawa, Dutch Mantel, Paul Heyman, Joe Silva, Dave Lagana, and Vince McMahon. So, pretty good for Gabe. Promoter of the year was Nobuyuki Saka Ibarra, who's the promoter of Pride. Number two, Rob Feinstein. Now, this is always tickles me, because obviously no one knew at this time. Rob Feinstein was voted as the Wrestling Promoter of the Year. One, the promotion wasn't that big. Two, we'd find out in a few months, he had lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he finished ahead of Masawa, Vince McMahon, Ultimo Dragon, Dana White. Like, just... Just... Ugh, pretty crazy. Um, and finally, Matt, maybe my favorite one. Best gimmick, John Cena won. CM Punk, straight edge, finished second. You know who finished sixth for best gimmick? Special K. Special K ranked in the Observer Award. I did not remember that. Good on them. Wow. 
Dave wrote in the award, Observer Awards that CM Punk was the shock of the awards, finishing high in several categories, even though his main promotion, TNA, didn't even push him. So, shows you the strength of Ring of Honor. Um, in going to the torch quickly, Bruce Mitchell had AJ Styles versus Paul London as his third best match of the year. He also thought it was a, Paul London's final match in Ring of Honor, which it wasn't, so poor Bruce getting a little confused. Wade gave Holland versus Brian Danielson his fourth best match of the year, and he just raved about it. I won't read his whole review, but he just loved it. He said this 42-minute match featured a lot of the elements that made Triple H and Shawn Michaels that they were recently praised for in their end-of-the-year Raw match, except more daring and even better. Uh, he says, uh, let me see if I can find here. London is praised, rightly so, for being a throwback at how he approaches his matches. His realism first, high spots second approach, despite being fully able to pull off many dazzling high spots, is what won him a WWE contract over many other flashier cruiserweights on the indie scene. Danielson is even more of a throwback. He looks like a wrestler transport in a time machine from 40 years ago. Um, finally, Bruce Mitchell had the rising star of the year and he picked the entire ring of honor promotion as his rising star of the year he wrote finally at the end pick any wrestler that is used in both ring of honor and nwtna ring of honor is using that performer much more effectively ring of honor is a fresh new breeze in a promotion genre that needs one desperately i started to notice in the last couple of months of research this is when people started really comparing ring of honor to, new, to TNA in the newsletters over and over again and basically saying Ring of Honor was better. And let's just say that that sentiment might come back to haunt Ring of Honor in a few months when they need TNA to maybe be understanding about something. So that's the year, and I want to thank everybody for listening to us, supporting us. I want to thank Matt most of all for putting up with me and... If you want to contact us, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter, through the years at gmail.com, that's T-H-R-O-H, and message boards like Pro Wrestling Only, Voices of Wrestling, Figure Four, we have threads for the show that I read, and Matt, is there anything you want to add? Nope, just thank you for listening, thank you for putting up with me, I can't wait for 2004, uh... It is an epic year in so many ways for ROH. Um, wow, what a ride it's going to be. The, 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 it, you thought 2003 was crazy. 2004 is fucking crazy. Yeah, this is when... I mean, so much crazy stuff. This is when Ring of Honor really, I guess what someone consider hits their prime. It also has the a story that almost kills Ring of Honor that we'll have to go into. And just so many amazing things. It is so exciting. It's the year I started becoming a regular fan of Ring of Honor. And it's going to be more shows, more episodes. Just, I can't wait. And thank you, everybody. And we'll see you again, starting with 2004. And the battle lines are drawn. We will kick off 2004 with the next episode. And we will see you then.